When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brandspark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Do you like to volunteer? Enjoy giving back? Or maybe you at least wish you had more time to do so. Well, you are not alone. The 2021 Volunteering in America report found that 60.7 million adults, over 23% of the adult population here in the U.S., volunteered 4.1 billion hours. How's that for some positive news? Maybe humanity isn't garbage. Hmm. And at least a few of these volunteers were working for a shady organization called the National Labor Federation, NATLFED. NATLFED is a network of local community associations run exclusively by volunteers that, in theory, organize workers excluded from collective bargaining protections by U.S. labor law, specifically under the National Labor Relations Act of 1935. That 1935 act guarantees the right of private sector employees to organize into trade unions, engage in collective bargaining, and to take collective actions such as strikes, like the one going on right now in Hollywood with the WGA writers and the SAG-AFTRA performers. For decades, again, in theory, the National Labor Federation focused on helping some of the country's most vulnerable workers, people who are essentially the American equivalent of what we explored in the Banana Massacre episode, like exploited migrant laborers and their families, people who didn't have reliable access to food, legal protection, and medical attention. Volunteers for various NATLFED satellite organizations were told that they were improving the world doing all this, but were they? Doesn't seem so. Many, many people have alleged for decades now that NATLFED and all of its related networks are really just one massive front for a cult based in twisted communist ideology. Former NATLFED cadre Robin Spellman Falberg, who was an operations manager with uh, upstate New York EFWA for a decade, said in 2004 that in addition to doing some helping in the most disenfranchised communities, there is also a hidden, for want of a better description, evil side of NATLFED. When I was there, and from what I've heard, continues to be the case, there were manipulative people in powerful positions. Full-timers were subjected to an increasingly severe mental abuse and subjugation. They felt the only way to help poor people was through NATLFED, that there was no possible success for them after leaving, and or they were subject to physical threats if they did. And this has been going on, and worse things have been going on all around the country with this uh, organization since the mid-1970s. Yeah, still going on, uh, though NATLFED's shady founder... A man who called himself uh, Eugenio Parente would die in the 1990s after the revolution he predicted to take place in 1984 did not happen. His cult would still limp on, surviving two major raids, a plethora of legal troubles and internal power struggles that did seem to set the cult back, but never entirely destroyed it. Today, the group s seems to still be limping along. It's mostly decentralized, it appears, but that doesn't mean they're not still dangerous. People have posted online as recently as two years ago. 
2021 about family members and loved ones agreeing to volunteer with an organization that sounded like it was doing so much good and then disappearing into a shady conglomerate for months, sometimes years, where they lived below the poverty line, slept on dirty mattresses, and were regularly abused or even sexually preyed upon. Is the organization at the tippy top of this odd cultic pyramid, a mysterious group that called themselves the Communist Party USA Provisional Wing, still around? Are they still armed? Still hoping to take over the U.S. government? A lot of interesting ground and unintentional comedy to explore in today's Back to the 70s. Here comes the revolution, you capitalist swine. Cult, cult, cult edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening. Well, happy Monday and welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the Suck Master, Suck Nasty, former White House plumber apprentice, world's leading expert in authentic Scottish accents, professional tricky dick impersonator, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise be to Bojangles and glory be to Triple M. Uh, before I say anything else today, a uh, huge congrats to my son, Kyler, for starting this college journey. So fucking proud of you, Bubba. You're going to crush it, and I'm going to try not to be sad and cry when I see you because part of me wishes I could just lock you in the basement and, you know, uh, never let you move away. We could just play FIFA together, you know, just, uh, you know, you'll be in your 40s and uh, I'll be in uh, my 70s and it'll be, it'll be fine. But I am happy for you. Very happy. Very proud of you. Uh, also, thanks to a lot of new listeners who have found Time Suck this month. Some of you have been... Uh, Horrified and have fled in fear and disgust, <laughs> but many of you have stayed, and I am grateful. Uh, if you're enjoying yourself, please leave me a nice review somewhere or in many somewheres. Uh, definitely helps this going for sure. Also, you should probably definitely watch my latest stand-up special, "Trying to Get Better," which lives on YouTube for free right now. Free content on the Bad Magic Productions YouTube channel. And if you uh, love some of the jokes, you can go to the BadMagicMerch.com website, uh, where there is awesome merch that accompanies many of the jokes. And not done. If you live in or near Virginia, you should definitely come see me at the Funny Bone in Richmond, Virginia, September 8th and 9th. The new hour is cooking along. Uh, watch one hour on YouTube and then come see a whole another hour in Richmond. Let's do it. Uh, tickets for this date, dates in Burlington, Vermont, Buffalo, New York, Chicago, Illinois, and elsewhere available at dancomas.tv. Also uh, almost done this month's charity is Sustainable Alamance, a nonprofit based in North Carolina. The mission of Sustainable Alamance is to focus on and help individuals who were formerly incarcerated gain and sustain employment so that they may not only live within the community constructs, but also contribute to society as well. And Sustainable Alamance has maybe the best quote ever on their website. Uh, Poverty is not a lack of money, but a lack of resources. We believe that you can give give a man fish, charity, and even teach a man to fish, grace and mercy, but we must also ensure access to the lake, hope and justice. If you'd like to learn more about Sustainable Alamance, visit sustainablealamance.org. Uh, they're uh, 15, uh, 1546, uh, as far as dollars, was put into the scholarship fund, and 13915 of our Patreon support was donated to Sustainable Alamance. And one more thing. Be sure to stick around for the end of this week's Time Sucker Updates again. Back with another BetterHelp special edition of Time Sucker Updates, where I've partnered with BetterHelp to share some insight and advice given to me to give to you by a licensed therapist. All of this advice is based on questions we've received from some of you meat sacks. Now back to a time and place uh, we actually know quite well, at least if you've listened to our exploration of other similar topics in the past. Eugenio Parente, the eventual founder of Natalfed, 
would get his start in a time and place we've already been to many, many times, San Francisco in the 1970s, home to many quasi-revolutionary groups like the Symbionese Liberation Army that we covered in our episode on the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. Much like the Symbionese Liberation Army, Eugenio Parente's original group was a small American, very far left militant organization. At least they pushed that image uh, that also wanted to you know, bring down the U.S. government and capitalism. He called it Largo, Liberation Army Revolutionary Group Organization. Definitely sounds communist, as in uh, it's a dumb fucking name <laughs> filled with a lot of unnecessary words. Do you really need to add the word organization after the word group? Sounds redundant as hell to me. We are CFGDBS, the combative fighting guy dudes battling and clashing for independence, self-government, sovereignty, and autonomy. So you're, you're freedom fighters then. Uh, yeah, I guess you could also say it that way, in addition to the way that I said it. That would also suffice. But aside from sending a few weird letters, Largo never really got anything off the ground. So many pretenders, ultimately, in the let's fucking go, viva la revolution! Killing in the name of kind of game. Uh, while the Symbionese Liberation Army was also definitely full of pretentious fucks cosplaying as revolutionaries, they actually did do some wild shit. They robbed banks, held a shootout with police in Los Angeles, murdered at least two people. By comparison, Largo was, uh, was pretty pathetic. Their most militant act was to send a letter to many state authorities that stated the day of the coming revolution, the day that California's government would be overthrown. Get ready, motherfuckers. You will rue the day. That you heard the name Largo. Get ready to bow down to a new world order. And then they, uh, they didn't do shit. Uh, the police and FBI would get involved. Uh, <laughs> Largo was so pathetic. Uh, they didn't really do much to them. They were just more like, uh, you fucking dumb commie dingleberries. Thought you would overthrow something? <laughs> That's rich. Uh, you dirty hippies in the uh, Che Guevara graphic tees, military surplus cargo pants and sandals. What, do you think you were going to just chant your way into the Capitol? Talk us into laying down our guns by uh, lecturing us on the evils of capitalism with a hunger strike or some shit. Get the fuck out of here. Go back to the library. Read some more Karl Marx. Daydream about doing shit. You'll never have the nuts to pull off and suck a bag of dicks. If the Symbionese Liberation Army was cosplaying revolutionaries, Largo was cosplaying people who were cosplaying revolutionaries. A sad copy of a sad copy. Uh, When Largo never took off like he hoped, old Gino, Eugenio, resurfaced about a year later in Long Island in New York City, a place in time we most re- recently visited with the Sullivanians cult. Nadelfed would actually share many similarities with the Sullivanians. Much like how Saul Newton and his therapist used therapy, used psychoanalysis to keep everyone under the group's thumb, Eugenio Parente would hold the ideal of saving the poor and downtrodden from exploitation through commitment to volunteering over people's heads. Weird, right? I never even considered a non-religious, non-spiritual organization based primarily in volunteering Volunteering with the eventual goal of transforming America into some kind of communist utopia to be where a, a cult would live. All right? You have time to volunteer? Okay. All right. Volunteer then. Wait, wait, wait. You, you have to go home? You, you have time to go home? Oh, okay. All right. I, I, I guess you're not really dedicated like a thought. Like, I, I guess you like capitalism. I, I guess you like seeing the working class get their fucking backs broken by modern day robber barons. If you were truly dedicated to saving America, you would spend all your time volunteering. You would live in this brownstone 24-7 with a dozen other people. That's what a good person who truly wants to change the world would do. Much like the Sullivanians, Nadelfed preyed on people's desire to be good. While the Sullivanians targeted introspective people already in therapy, 
right? Trying to achieve self-actualization. Nadelfed targeted uh, young idealistic people already on college campuses, sometimes with the uh, direct support of the college and like pretty much all cults, people who are at a, you know, difficult juncture in their lives. Young mothers trying to figure out how to make it as a single parent, uh, recent graduates looking at the world, struggling to figure out where their place in it was going to be, etc. Like the Sullivanians, Nadelfed also sprinkled a good bit of Marxist communist rhetoric into everything they did. Back at the leadership's uh, headquarters, a series of brownstones in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, Eugenia Parente gave long, rambling lectures about Marxist, uh, Marxist theory, Marxist, there we go, uh, linking revolutions abroad to their movement, trying to convince the gaggle of people that he had under his thumb that they were true revolutionaries about to take down the men, the system. They would soon subvert the dominant paradigm and bring about a new and better world order. Instead of the truth, which was that they were being brainwashed, controlled, and exploited by a cult leader who ran his cult almost exactly like some false prophet doomsday preacher. Nadelfed wasn't about bringing about a revolution. It was about feeding Parente's ego, giving him young women and teen girls to sexually use and control and other people to worship him like he was uh, Che Guevara reincarnated. Despite these similarities, Nadelfed was also very unique and maybe still is if they are in fact still around in the same way they used to be. They had a very interesting, very strange structure, something like we've never seen before. So stick around. Let me tell you all about it. So much silly, interesting, and weird shit to explore today. Arranging information about Nadelfed uh, was a bit tricky for this one. Nobody's done a, a full-length book on them. And so much of the organization has been and still is shrouded in a, in a lot of confusion and secrecy. That's, that's what they like. Several ex-members have thankfully kept a blog dedicated to Nadelfed history. Uh, some ex-members and journalists have written a few lengthy articles about their experiences with the group. But again, no, uh, no definitive source. Without that main source, in order to piece together what this group actually is, was, uh, we had to rely on, on blog posts, interviews, a bunch of old newspaper articles, and uh, this is uncommon for what we do here, but modern day posts on message boards like Reddit. Not necessarily ideal, but also I, uh, I like it. It's some, some fresh information. Uh, and what emerges from all these uh, different sources is gloriously fascinating. When we put all the pieces together, we get a picture of a group that formed during the last gasps of America's counterculture revolution in the early 70s, claimed to be affiliated with legitimate labor movements and revolutionary movements abroad, but wasn't, and used that as a front to control and manipulate members. One of the ways they did this was to have a confusing and complicated structure to the organization in which it was unclear who reported to who, what organizations were associated with one another, who was at the very top. But I think we were able to break it all down and expose it today. It'll feel confusing in moments, but just remember, it's not important to remember all of the acronyms I'm going to throw out at you or even what these satellite groups did. That doesn't really matter to the, to the big picture. doesn't matter what they claim to do. What is important to understand is that they were all connected to Nadelfed and they all, they, they all funneled certain members up the chain to Nadelfed and that Nadelfed was a front for a group called the Communist Party USA Provisional Wing. And this group was at the top of the strange little cult pyramid. It was headquartered in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, the Brownstones, where Eugenio Parente would give his long lectures almost every night. And, and this inner circle group was the, was the true cult inside of Nadelfed. Some of the various satellite groups also treated volunteers like cult members, but the group at the top 100% was a cult and very likely still is in some form. Uh, what's also interesting to think about as we, as we wind through all of this is how eerily similar this cult is, uh, this cult that forbid religion, this cult guided by communist principles, how it ended up feeling damn near exactly like a doomsday cult founded in religious extremism. 
Uh, just replace false prophet with phony revolutionary leader. Replace knowing when the end times will be upon us with knowing when a government takeover will happen. Replace needing to follow a false prophet in order to be guaranteed a special seat at the table in the coming days of a new kingdom of God with needing to follow a revolutionary leader in order to be guaranteed a special seat at the table in a coming utopian communist society. Despite a lack of religion, a lack of any notion of God, in the end, it was all the same shit when it came to why cult members hung around and uh, how they were manipulated and exploited. Today's story, more proof that you you don't need religion to form a cult. You don't need any sense of a spiritual life. Uh, At one point in my life, I thought that if you could somehow eliminate all religion, you could rid the world of this type of exploitation. Nope. If a con artist can't take advantage of your desire to know God, they'll just find some other hope of yours to fucking prey upon, uh, which is a bummer. So what was Nadelfed's doomsday, uh, you know, back when the cult was at the peak of its powers? Well, all the members of the provisional wing were preparing for a revolution. That Parente promised, just like a false prophet would promise, you know, with a specific date, it was going to kick off February 17th, 1984. Remember that crazy revolution back in 84? When America was taken down by an elite communist domestic terrorist organization? Not all members of Nadelfed uh, were provisional wing members, though. Just the best of the best, or sometimes the hottest. Uh, to become a member of the provisional wing, it seems like uh, you likely started by working in one of Nadelfed's many shell organizations around the country. They called them local branches, uh, have many different names. They would obscure intentionally their real connection to Nadelfed. Uh, these were organizations named uh, things like, and, and here's a bunch of the acronyms I mentioned were coming that you don't need to remember, but it's interesting just how many of them there were. Uh, the Alaska Workers Association, uh, uh, Alianza Campesina, Association of Financial Aid Students, Ashland Community Service Center, Bay Area Alternative Press, Berkshire Community Fuel Committee, Boston Community for Community Arts, Carroll Street Properties, Citizens for Migrant Workers, Citizens Relief Committee, Coalition of Concerned Legal Professionals, Coalition of Concerned Medical Professionals, Commemoration Committee for the Black Panther Party, Commission on Voluntary Service and Action, Committee for Community Health and Safety, Committee for Safety and Health of Attendants and Domestics, Committee for South African Solidarity, Committee for Friends and Relatives of Prisoners. And that is literally just the A to C groups that we've been able to like piece together, well, that others, investigative journalists, have been able to piece together. Uh, these fuckers had the whole rest of the alphabet's worth of other tiny little cells of people involved in some way to Nadelfed in the provisional wing of this Communist Party. Uh, there were dozens, if not hundreds more. And some of these organizations still around in some form. These organizations would spring up around the country, some of them kind of legitimate, doing some good, uh, but doing a lot of, you know, funneling money up the chain to Nadelfed. Some of them not doing much good at all. Uh, All their members, you know, uh, being exploited in some way, raising money for something they may not, uh, you know, even have known existed, probably didn't know existed for many of them. And members who wanted to dedicate themselves to the revolutionary cause even further, these elite revolutionary cause players might then head to New York, where they would become Nadelfed members. And then some of the Nadelfed members, if they did really well, might be invited to join the provisional wing, right? The inner circle of fake fighters, the best of the not so best. You're the best around. Nothing's going to ever keep you down except reality. Uh, this complicated structure is what makes these slippery fuckers hard to pin down. It's made it hard for people volunteering for uh, for these various acronyms to know what they're really helping to make things even more confusing. The Communist Party USA Provisional Wing has had many different names over the years. They've called themselves the Communist Party, United States of America, Provisional, the Provisional Communist Party, Provisional Party, uh, Provisional Party of Communists, uh, and even just the Order of Lenin. Some Nadelfed literature 
claimed to make sense of all of this intentionally confusing structure for members who needed some questions answered about it all. The training manual slash tracked slash shut the fuck up already with this bullshit uh, called The Essential Organizer, written by Eugenio Gino Parente, a manual you could argue, argue was their uh, biblical equivalent or Bible equivalent, described their structure like this. An organization does not just happen. Sometimes a catalyst or disaster of sufficient proportion disturbs mass conscience, conscience to the extent that experienced individuals with experience relating to the disaster can form a group dedicated to aid in a disciplined manner. This created the American Red Cross. Sometimes membership groups are merely organized. In this case, an organizer or organizing entity will seek a solution in an area of concern. He or they will outline a solutional method to remedy the situation, outline the geographic confines of the problem, and approach individuals of similar concern within the area, explaining their concept of solution, and on finding agreement, asking the individual to join in the effort. Eastern Farm Workers Association, a natal fed group, is an example of this, a pre-planned organized entity. It then remains for the organization to define itself structurally and philosophically in regard to its operation. In some, a board of directors handles decisions. In others, a plebiscite of membership is relied on. In the case of most organized entities where the duty of the organization lies in the arena of building another organization and the majority of strategic questions were pre-planned, the cadre system is established. Under a cadre system of decision-making, trained individuals capable of, uh, or cadre, of both uh, operating the basic mechanics of the group and training other individuals to perform the tasks agree to tactical solutions regarding strategic goals by the consensus approach. That is, submitting positive information from key areas within the organization to approachable leadership and then confers on policy evolving from the leadership analysis. The criterion of approval lies in obviating a denial of correctness from any of the participants. In this case, the participants are cadre. Uh, leadership is furnished by either the operation structure of the organization or the originator of the approved strategy. Anyone else fucking hate the way this dipshit writes about all this? Could it be any more boring? And this asshole would give lectures, like speaking like this, that would sometimes drone on for 12 fucking hours. Imagine listening to this asshole, like talk like that from noon to midnight. Uh, Gino's description of organizational structure continues. Eastern Farm Workers Association is then a cadre-based uh, organization uh, op as a pre-planned entity of a, an original committee approval. It is dedicated to raising a membership plebiscite of farm workers who will, at the time of the plebiscite, determine the structure of the final entity. A cadre is either an individual of the type described above or a collection of individuals within the organization dealing with a specific task in unison. Cadres come from two areas. They are either exterior cadre or interior cadre. Interior cadre come to the organization from the ranks of sympathizers, supporters, members, and other associates who, in continuing their association with the group, Subscribe to the methods and goals espoused by the organization to the extent that they both desire to abide by all pre-planned policy and discipline. And second, they fulfill the standards of participation subscribed to by the participating cadre, at least to the extent that cadre consensus does not exclude them. Fuck me. Cadres are goal motivated. The end, the final solution offered by the organization is the primary concern prior to participation. If the solution seems correct, the structural facets of the group in respect to flexibility and strategic dexterity must be correct. Leadership, 12 hours of this, leadership should exhibit approachability, awareness, and a logical, dispassionate ability in analysis. A goal-motivated individual considering the cadre status within a group is concerned with solutional analysis, structural correctness, and leadership understanding. Does this sound anyone else? Like the writings of someone 
who actually is not very smart, but who desperately wants to sound very, very smart. Like he so badly wants to be seen as a true uh, intellectual. And he thinks if he can just string enough uh, academic terms together, he can make his word salad fuckery sound profound. I bet this guy's thesaurus. <laughs> just never left his side. Uh, leadership should be magnanimous and exceptional. No, mag- no, magnanimous and unsurpassable in its effort to present solutionally based, no, expositionally centered feedback that incentivizes workers, no, stimulates operatives to accelerate or expedite their veritable and uninitiated potential or aptitude. Uh, yeah, sure. That does all make sense if you break it all down. Uh, but you could also just not be a pretentious dick and just say something much more understandable like, we need solid leaders to get most of our workers, uh, to get the most out of our workers by providing good feedback and, you know, empowering them. Anyway, Mr. Check Out How Many Fucking Scrabble Words I Know continues with. A potential exterior cadre examining an organization as a potential host for personal goals is interested only in ascertaining if any condition exists currently that proves conclusively the attempt will not work. The cadre is aware of and unconcerned by the fact that the vehicle currently won't work. One thing is lacking, individuals of sufficient skill, determination, discipline, and devoid of ulterior motivation or interest to operate the vehicle of organization. My God. In short, the organization must fit only two descriptions. It must have correct goals and it must not be structurally incorrect. Success from that point is determined by cadre motivation, ability and training. It is the basic concept of the cadre-oriented activist that a reasonable plan with no logical flaw and no basic structural imperfection will eventually triumph and struggle with, stru- with a strongly entrenched adversary, processing even the minimal, minimal faults needed to qualify as an oppressor, contradictions in practice or performance, and divided areas of self-interest. The basic role of cadre is not one of position, but one of power within any position. Okay, uh, so I guess what he's saying here is that because poor people in different areas are working different kinds of jobs and being exploited in different ways, it makes sense for different organizations to serve those different populations. And also, what you need to be uh, to help create real change and win a revolution is to be someone who can uh, just you know be flexible, go with the fucking flow, and stay dedicated to core ideology regardless of what group you find yourself working in and what task you end up doing. I think that's a decent synopsis. I also think Gino may have written the way he wrote intentionally uh, trying to keep people uh, confused. In some other literature, Nadelfed uh, addressed its national structure much more succinctly, thank God. The only thing that that really makes sense is the local community-based associations that reach unrecognized workers and unite them with current and former union workers, retired workers, local business leaders, professionals, and others who share a common concern for the long-term future of our communities. Fucking boom! We're all working towards the same goal, trying to help the working class. But as we'll see in the timeline, Natal Fed didn't give a fuck about that goal. They weren't about protecting communities. They were about giving Gino and I'm sure uh, uh, the people around him money and power. And, you know, to that uh, end, uh, members were abused physically and sexually. Uh, they were kept away from their pre-cult social circles and given demanding rigorous schedules that barely left time to sleep and confusing tasks that kept them mentally off balance. And with that context established, let's get into the weeds. Cult, cult, cult. It's timeline time. Right after today's sponsor break. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. 
All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has 0 to 1 gram of net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the 2 grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the 1 gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. 5 grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. And we're back to the show now. Back to me actually hitting this fun little timeline button. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Let's begin in the year 1937. That year, the man who would become Eugenio Mario Parente Ramos. Uh, Ramos was born in Crookston, Minnesota, November 21st. He would grow up around Yuba City and Marysville in California. His family was originally from Idaho. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. And had moved to Minnesota sometime in the early 1950s. In his obituary, years later, his mother was described as a domestic worker, while his father would be described in newspapers as a man active in the industrial workers in the world. Okay, sounds a little bit like uh, some more commie speak. Uh, word his dad was a blue-collar worker. Uh, Gino's birth name was not quite as revolutionary as Eugenio Mario Parente Ramos. 
It was Gerald Doden. <laughs> Fucking Jerry D, baby. Jerry Bear, the revolutionary. Jerry Guevara, Che's very disappointing little brother. Uh, Jerry would become a man of many names. Gino Parente, Gino Parenti, uh, Eugenio Parente, Mario Eugenio Parente, Mario Eugenio uh, Parente Ramos, uh, Eugenio Mario Parente Ramos, Gino Savo, uh, Gino Parmigiana Casona, Maserati, Dana Baraducci, Antonio Banderas. You get it. And Claude. Just Claude for that one. Some sort of say Claude was a, a Shakespearean actor before he turned to labor organization. To revolt or not to revolt. To accept the status capitalist pig quo. That is not the question. There is no question. There is only the truth. The revolution has begun. The cost will be paid in blood. But the sacrifice will be worth it. For the only outcome is victory. Tyranny shall fall. And the great Claude shall reign over the dawn of a new humanistic era. Cue thunderous applause and panties getting tossed in the air. Uh, If true, Claude's uh, theater training. Would certainly come in handy for all the bullshit roles he'll play going forward in his uh, con artist-based life. Uh, but before that, while in college, Jerry Claude was injured in a car accident that would leave him with a limp for the rest of his life. I'm sure he told people he got fucking shot in a fucking revolutionary struggle. Uh, doctors apparently wanted to amputate, but he refused uh, and had his leg in a cast for several years, developing a chronic infection of the bone and giving him too much time to think about his future bullshit cons. Uh, Gerald would later claim that he spent much of the 1950s doing a bunch of labor organ organ yeah labor organizing however others would disagree with this according to a lot of people he was a small town dj who didn't do a whole lot of anything when not at the radio station everyone in town knew jerry in the late 1950s said one yuba city resident bill mcjunkin that's a fucking great name mcjunkin a local machinist he worked at the radio station and hung out at andy's drive-in i'll tell you one thing about him he never did an honest day's work in his life that reminds me of my grandpa Ward there. And of so many older guys around Riggins growing up. I've heard numerous guys described as never having done a honest day's work in their life. And that description brings up a very specific visual in my head. Some dude with a firm handshake and a million dollar smile. Guy who's maybe always dressed a, a little too nice. A little too well for the occasion. A little too uh, slick. A little too put together. Guy with no calluses on his hands who will look you right in the eye and tell you nothing but lies. A guy who even though you might not have any proof when you first meet him that what he's saying is nothing but a bunch of lies and exaggeration. Part of you almost knows you're talking to a bullshit artist. Some slick, golden-tongued motherfucker. Uh, according to another Yuba City resident, Frank uh, Cartaselli, Jerry spent five years working as a well-liked local disc jockey. He was a damn good one and popular. Said Cartaselli, he was a sharp guy who spent a lot of time in the library. I liked the guy. He was always nice to me. Uh, the next review, not as glowing, or maybe mixed, is a better description. Uh, a woman who said she was very close to Jerry described him as an extraordinarily sensitive, sad, crippled genius with an enormous amount of anger. She said that once while out drinking coffee at an all-night Marysville restaurant, a fellow customer called him uncouth. <laughs> what do you mean uncouth? Supposedly replied Gerald, who then proceeded to recite from memory entire sections of Shakespeare's play as you like it. Holy fucking dorks, Batman. Was he a crippled genius or just a melodramatic theatrical weirdo? Uh, others describe Jerry as a man always running a con. Bingo! That one feels correct. Several of Jerry's old friends recalled a tale of how when they all once went out drinking together with Gerald, uh, he actually paid for drinks with a check he signed as Jesus H. Christ. Okay, all right. Oh, he had an odd sense of humor. Uh, I can relate. Uh, Jerry was never prosecuted for that, apparently because the merchant did not wish to appear in court and publicly admit he'd accepted such a check. That's pretty funny, if true. Uh, one of his favorite cons included 
printing and selling raffle tickets for prizes he never bought. Uh, prizes that were then never given to winners who didn't exist. Jerry would also bill himself as a wedding photographer, accept an initial down payment, and then, you know, just never show the fuck up and take any pictures. So what an asshole. Uh, this revolutionary grifter clearly didn't give a fuck about helping people. Sounds like he was just, you know, ripping people off left and right. Ripping off working class people as well. 1960, I assume. 1960, Gerald, at the age of 22, uh, he marries Ruth Mickelson, and the two have a daughter together, Catherine. Early in the marriage, Ruth tries to figure out how the brilliant person she fell in love with became this lazy person she was now married to. Later, she would describe him to journalists saying he was brilliant. He would read 15 books a week. He was always at the library. He wanted to reform the world. He had a vision. But did he? Did he read 15 books a week? I seriously fucking doubt it. That's a lot of books. I mean, if he was reading books written for toddlers like Goodnight Moon, maybe. Uh, I'm guessing the grifter, the professional liar, just went to the library and then told his wife. He read 15 books a week and used enough big words to make his wife think he was a genius. In addition to his legendary knowledge absorption and uh, visions and shit, uh, she said he also just laid around, <laughs> read poetry instead of working or helping around the house, experimented experiment with drugs, talked a lot about organizing labors into a union, but never seemed to take any real steps towards doing that. So, you know, in short, he was a fucking bum, deadbeat. And when he reportedly fathered another child outside their marriage, Ruth called it quits and filed for divorce. By the end of the 1960s, Jerry would be in jail for failure to pay child support. One of many cult leaders we have covered now who failed to pay child support before sharing their incredible vision and powers with their adoring followers. Such strong character and integrity with these motherfuckers. Uh, by 1970, Jerry D., now 32 years old, was spending much of his time at the Little Red Bookstore. Sounds commie. In San Francisco, a funky little Bay Area shop on 3191 Mission Street that uh, offered Communist Party literature and was the de facto headquarters for an organization Jerry put together called Largo. <laughs> this is great. These Largo revolutionaries were training for fucking war, you guys. The biggest war America would ever know. That's what they said anyway. Uh, currently, it looks like there's a tattoo shop, underground tattoo and nail salon in this building. Tattoo shop looks dope. Wonder if they know uh, what used to go down in their building. In full, Largo's name was the Liberation Army Revolutionary Group Organization. <laughs> that group organization redundancy still kills me. Uh, in March of 1970, Largo mailed... <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my favorite parts of this episode. In March of 1970, Largo uh, mailed mimeographed proclamations to several California county governments declaring that a fully trained, equipped, and manned army of revolution will be operated in Northern California beginning March 15th. <laughs> Each and every one of those county commissioners, uh, I wonder if they just uh, sent a memo back. They just said, cool story, bro. Uh <laughs> I don't know if they said anything, but I know I love this proclamation. Uh, please enjoy the glorious, nonsensical, false bravado of what follows here. The letter sent to the government described Largo as a fighting force dedicated to the overthrow of the United States government by the use of force. Plans and training procedures for this organization have been conducted within the confines of California, and we motivate a national uprising. During the months that follow, we will offer the public more material as to our benevolent purpose toward the people of the world. You will notice that our material is badly printed. This is due to the fact that printing devices, even those operating within private premises, are traceable by the federal police state, necessitating the disguise of any mass-procured material. Okay, I already have to interject. I love that these clowns are saying, <laughs> are saying that they won't use a decent printing device because that could lead to their whereabouts being uncovered. 
but they will give the government they're planning to attack a big heads up, like when they're going to fucking attack them. That's very much a mixed message. I mean, if you're so serious about your revolution that you're not going to use a conventional printing device over fears of being tracked, wouldn't you also maybe not warn your enemy about your fucking master plan? Also, can all printing devices be tracked by the government? I fucking doubt it back in 1970. Uh, Largo continues with, I do not know what path the federal force will follow to keep, to keep civilian casualties to a minimum. We are establishing a set of qualifications with <laughs> which we will unswervingly follow to regulate the war against the oppressive federal government. In the revolution, all those who bear... I picture like at the coffee shop when he's like sharing this people. They're like, oh, fuck yeah, yes. Oh, fuck it. We're, they're going to get it. <laughs> these fucking bums just like drinking coffee and just getting high not doing shit uh, in the revolution all those who bear arms in service of the established government to be deposed are considered members of the federal forces because of their ability and orders to destroy apprehend kill and detain soldiers of the national liberation front this includes members of local police forces the california highway patrol california border patrol members of county sheriff departments uniformed armed members of the national guard and all federal troops on duty in uniform and armed. Uh, this shit is so entertainingly dumb and amateurish to me. What kind of revolutionaries feel the need to A, tell their oppressors they plan to attack them sometime soon, and then B, make it very clear that they'll only be attacking people dedicated to attacking them in a long-winded, convoluted explanation. <laughs> to be clear, when the revolution begins and the blood of the tyrants floods the street, that blood will not be the blood of unarmed housewives or school children or, uh, for example, elderly people with dementia residing in assisted living facilities or jugglers, buskers, and other assorted street performers who are neither in favor of nor opposed to the current regime but are merely trying to put some food in their bellies with tip money earned by moderately entertaining civilians passing by. The blood of the revolution will also not include Professional baseball players who are trying to kill or uh, not trying to kill anyone, but instead are doing their very best to hit safely or make great defensive stops or lower their earned run average through proper pitch selection and likely also exceptional velocity and movement. Whatever it takes within the confines of the existing rules to win the sporting match. <laughs> you get it. Largo continues. <laughs> Soldiers of the revolution will be dressed in a military manner uniformly with other members of the striking force to which we belong. In case of an emergency, when a soldier of Largo must bear arms without notice, he will identify himself throughout the action with a red armband on the left arm. Civilians coming into contact with soldiers of the revolution should immediately identify themselves, their location and non-combatant status. Do not identify yourself as a sympathizer unless this is a true statement. Your rights will be honored and your safety taken into primary consideration regardless of beliefs. <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe this is fucking real. This feels more like a Will Ferrell character in an old SNL sketch or like a Danny McBride, just kind of like one of those arrogant idiot characters instead of real life. I, I find it so fucking entertaining when cult leaders this unbelievably stupid are able to succeed on some level. Just so you know, our soldiers will be dressed like soldiers. And another important thing, if you want no quarrel with us, please just tell us that you are a sympathizer and therefore we will not riddle 
your body with bullets and flood the streets with more blood of the revolution. But please do not tell us that if you uh, are not in fact a sympathizer and thus uh, tricking us by deception into letting our guards down for us then to be literally stabbed or shot in the back or something. That would fuck, God, that would not be cool. And that would be harmful to our revolutionary objectives in a most unpleasant and upsetting manner. And then the last thing they wrote in their leaflet was, our war against the federal forces will be conducted on a program of gradual acceleration as efforts to eliminate Largo increase. At each step of the escalation, a statement of procedure will be published in order to ensure the safety of war zone residents. Power to the people. <laughs> we shall not fail. Ah, so good. So fucking good. I wish that every topic we covered had some source material like that. Just a fucking gift wrapped and waiting to be unopened on the internet. One last thing. The more federal forces that try to stop us, the harder we will fight. Just so you know, we will accelerate our war gradually in order to match more fighting being directed against us. I hope I just made it clear that if you fight more hard against us, we will not start fighting less hard in return. Understand? That would allow us to be defeated. And defeat is not part of our strategy. We very much would like to win. So please, do not think you can defeat our revolution. By fighting more hard over and out. Power to the people. <laughs> this legendary letter was sent out on March 11th, 1970. <laughs> and I bet by March 12th, when the letter started to arrive places. Oh, God, just fucking officials, county officials across California were having a real good laugh over this shit. And also, this keeps getting better. Despite these idiots not using a conventional trackable printing device. <laughs> these fucking idiots were tracked down within 13 hours of the first letter being opened. Oh, God, I love it. 13 hours and the revolution is already over. <laughs> Took the FBI that long to trace Largo's written threats to Jerry D, who by this time was going by the alias of Gino Salvo. And the FBI was not even a little bit worried about this dork. <laughs> An agent for the State Department of Justice said, as anarchists and revolutionaries go, he is strictly small potatoes. Like, that's a quote. He's small potatoes. And then the agent added, while he boasts of having hundreds of automatic weapons and talks of his legions now undergoing guerrilla training in the hills, the fact is he has scarcely half a dozen dedicated followers and most of them can be classified as kooks. We do have true anarchists and revolutionaries in our midst, but he isn't one of them. I laughed so fucking hard when I first read that. Kooks, that's the word you don't hear enough of, uh, hear enough anymore. Agency also had intelligence that Gerald was considered a persona non grata, even within revolutionary circles. One source told them that Gerald recently attempted to form a coalition with heads of the Red Guard and Revolutionary Union in the Palo Alto area, and these guys essentially told him to beat it. Right? Come on, get Jerry D. <laughs> we got real revolutionary work to do, you fucking ding-dong, you kook. Also, some of the five or six kook followers he supposedly had uh, may have been invented. <laughs> One person who claimed to be a member of Largo was a guy who went by Claude, former downtown art store uh, clerk, who wrote into newspapers claiming to be an authority on bombs. Uh, Claude sent pictures of crude bombs. He said he purchased on the open market, but then agents determined uh, later that, you know, he didn't buy them, he made them, and that they didn't fucking work. So Gino Salvo uh, was Claude. Uh, finally, citing <laughs> Gerald's amateurism, no charges were filed against him for this, which is so sad. Dude threatens county officials with a bloody revolution. And the FBI's response is just like, ah, shut the fuck up, Jerry. Get out of here. We're not even going to arrest you, you fucking dork. Go get a job, you kook. <laughs> Following month in April of 1970, Jerry does get into some actual trouble. 
Uh, Sutter County Sheriff's deputies arrest him on charges of failing to pay child support. And he spends 30 days in jail. Following his release, he will never go by the name of Jerry Doden again. Jerry is dead. Jerry was a chump. He's Gino now. Primo Gino. Fucking revolutionary. Uh, and what I have to imagine was an effort to keep not paying child support and also to not get arrested. Now he changes his uh, name to, yeah, Eugenio Gino Parente, moves to New York State where he will start building a cult. So sad that this guy was able to build a cult. Uh, 1971, Parente works briefly for the United Farm Workers Organizing Committee, the predecessor of United Farm Workers of America, UFW, in his New York office. Right, Learn some more lingo. Make some contacts. Uh, after taking charge during a power vacuum, he is quickly fired for reasons unknown. Later, labor activist, uh, a real labor activist, Dolores Huerta, will remember him during this time period as a colorful biker type who played a small role in the boycott for about nine months or a year. He created a lot of problems for the union, attacking us in the press. Then he went and formed his own group. Prente began to organize a new group in November of 1971, working among nursery and greenhouse workers in New York's Suffolk County. A couple months later, he started organizing vegetable growers in Northport and uh, agricultural workers in Bellport, Long Island. By June of 1972, Parente and some early volunteers moved into Southhold Town. Later that summer, they moved to Riverhead Township, the heart of Long Island's migrant community. There, he founded the Eastern Farm Workers Association, an organization purportedly aiming to help migrant workers on Long Island. This is how it all really starts. The EFWA received press attention in its early days for attempting to organize farm workers at the I.M. Young Company, a potato grower. By this time, newspapers were reporting that Parente was a former associate of Cesar Chavez, an actual labor organizer of note, a, a true revolutionary. Born in 1927, Chavez grew up in Arizona and the small adobe home where Cesar uh, was born in uh, was swindled from his family. Chavez's father had agreed to uh, clear 80 acres of land in exchange. He would receive the deed to 40 acres of land that adjoined his home, but the agreement was broken and that land was then sold to a man named Justice Jackson. Chavez's dad went to a lawyer who advised him to borrow money and buy the land from Jackson. Later, when Chavez's father could not pay the unreasonably high interest on the loan, the lawyer then bought back the land for pennies on the dollar, sold it back to the original owner, and it was all a setup. It was all a fucking scam. Chavez learned about injustice early, about people being taken advantage of, and vowed to do something about it. He dedicated his life's work to improving conditions for the legions of farm workers who kept fresh food on the tables across America, while they often went hungry themselves, living and laboring in abysmal conditions, being paid unlivable wages and generally just exploited. Chavez modeled his methods on the nonviolent civil disobedience of Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., employing strikes, boycotts, marches, and fasts to draw attention to what he called La Casa. Devoutly religious, he also drew inspiration from the social teachings of the Catholic Church and from the life of St. Francis, an Italian nobleman who lived in the 12th century and 13th century, Francis of Assisi renounced his wealth after a period of captivity during war and illness, became a champion of the poor, living his life in solidarity with them. 1962, Chavez founded the National Farm Workers Association, later became United Farm Workers, and this would pave the way for landmark legislation in 1975 that codified and guaranteed agricultural workers' rights to unionize, bargain collectively with their employers, and vote in secret ballot elections in California. Cesar Chavez was the real fucking deal. Parente was not. Highly unlikely. He ever worked with Chavez, probably never even fucking met him. But with so much activism going on in the early 70s, it was easy for Prente to scam his way into some shit, replicating some of Chavez's methods, claiming to be his associate, making himself seem like he had Mexican heritage, just like the people he was supposedly helping when he didn't. So Prente organized 800 farm workers with 30 full-time EFWA staff and 70 volunteers in December of 1972 when the EFWA led a strike of potato workers. 
Strike was called on December 4th after nearly five weeks of work interruption, while many farmers were holding potatoes off the market, hoping for a price raise. Their aim was to get $2.89 an hour in wages and $0.10 an hour for hospitalization insurance. At the time, they were earning 2 bucks an hour, but not paid for so-called own time, periods when they were required to be at their places of work, but not actually operating potato grading machines. And they didn't receive any hospitalization insurance or other benefits. During the strike, the migrant farmers were given no wages, but had to pay for food and lodging in the camps owned by the Young Corporation. The migrant workers, along with the EFWA, marched for 15 days in front of the factory. The Farm Workers Association provided them with food and gas for their rudimentary heating units. And all of this was somewhat historic. This was the first union of agricultural workers on the East Coast. But that didn't mean it was recognized. In a court decision, the Department of Labor uh, determined that the EFWA was not a labor organization, as defined by federal law. Unclear if the actions also of the EFWA actually helped get those workers any extra money money or benefits, or if it just cost them money by keeping them out of the workforce for a while. But it gets his name out. All all this gets, uh, you know, Gino's name out. And uh, soon his band of followers will grow. 1973, Parente, still leading the EFWA, attends a Philadelphia convention of the National Unemployed and Welfare Rights Organization, NURO. Uh, NURO was a similarly shady group that had tried to destroy and replace the National Welf- Welfare Rights Organization. So uh, same acronym, but without the U. Uh, a legitimate national organization, which at its height in the early 70s had chapters in nearly every state in the nation. At the conference, Parente is thought to have somehow partnered with uh, NURO, which brought criticism, but others did defend him. Uh, most rushed to defend what was now being called NATLFED the National Labor Federation as he tries to take his, uh, you know, New York-based little organization to the national level. Here we fucking go. Uh, most of the defenders were thought to be Nadelfed members. Makes sense. Social worker familiar with Nadelfed work and possibly also a Nadelfed member said, they are doing the work state agencies should be providing. If they were interested in feeding or clothing people, it's the state they should press, not themselves. Uh, by 1973, Nadelfed had formed volunteer-run benefit programs, which include, uh, in its words, free dental care for members and their families. Also by 1973, other organizations under the Nadelfed umbrella popping up around the country like CHA, the California Homemakers Association, a group that claimed to provide free legal aid, free emergency food and clothing also supposedly collected by CHA and provided to members in severe need. Around this time, Nadelfed explained its goals with all of these groups in a publicly released document titled Sociology and the Unrecognized Worker. They also, in this document, seem to try and set the world fucking record for the most times somebody uses the word strata in a single paragraph. They wrote, Our strata is made up of people who circulate through many statuses during the course of a lifetime or even in a single year. Sometimes our members work in the field, sometimes in domestic work, in a car wash, at service work, in a laundry or restaurant, are unemployed or on welfare. This demands the, that organizational emphasis be placed on the entire strata. Poverty programs, educational systems, etc. have generally pulled from our strata, the most beautiful, intelligent, or healthy. Others have fallen into our strata, leaving the basic statistical contours of the strata pretty much untouched. It is our aim to raise our strata. As a whole, this demands the organization of the entire strata. (laughs) Seven times, by my count, seven stratas in six sentences. It's a fucking outstanding strata ratio. And strata in this context means a level or class to which people are assigned according to their social status, education, or income. Despite their claims, some New York journalists would note that by the mid-70s, Nadelfed had only been involved in a few union recognition battles and wasn't organizing labor according to their claims. Though they've entrusted a lot of people, another social worker explained, the members don't do anything. Nadelfed doesn't build anything. 
Well, they're doing something. Stockpiling an untold amount of money. Money that, although we don't know exactly when this happened, led to the transformation of Jerry D from a very fucking minor Bush League con artist playing the part of a uh, left-leaning labor organizer to a cult leader masquerading as a communist revolutionary. Despite maybe not really doing anything, Nadelfed claimed to have 40,000 members by the end of 1973. Places like Sacramento, New Brunswick, Philadelphia, Long Island, uh, Binghamton, New York, Western Massachusetts. Did they? I mean, Jerry D. previously claimed to have hundreds of revolutionary fighters training in the hills when he had maybe two or three fucking dorks. <laughs> so I doubt he now had 40,000 members, dedicated members of Nadelfed. But maybe he, he had hundreds. I don't know. Digging into their old literature, whatever members he did have uh, were the uh, fifth outer ring of the Nadelfed system. Yes, his intentionally confusing shell game of various offices and organizations now divided into, into rings. Uh, the fourth ring was volunteers or vols. Vols were engaged in organizing other members, going out to raise money, either by organizing bake sales or passing the donation can in shopping centers. At this level, the recruits were essentially uh, or usually young, naive college students who once inside the group would be expected, pressured to leave college and be placed into the cadre, uh, cadre uh, a sort of elite organizing position or the CDR level. The CDR level was then classified into two types, tabular on the third ring, viable on the second. Oh, this fucking code they talk. Uh, tabular third ring members would be almost completely occupied with clerical work, which largely entailed phoning, typing, filing out index cards. Uh, for each contact made by a cadre, a card would be made out in triplicate. One for the master file, another for the FF, or excuse me, FIIN, or financial input file. I don't know why there's two I's in an acronym. Maybe I, maybe I added that. Uh, and the third in the vol file. Viable CDRs, on the other hand, were considered candidates for the inner circle, the provisional wing, a group typically referred to cryptically uh, by assumed members like Parente to keep viable cadre candidates intrigued. To keep them hoping they would, if they played their cards right, if they were dedicated enough to the cause and willing to lay down their lives to the revolution, they'd be invited into the inner sanctum where they could really change the world. These young student candidates for supposed inner circle membership would be told of gun stockpiles for a coming revolution, and they were expected to be ready to let go of any personal plans to join said revolution at a moment's notice. Any second, comrades, we will soon initiate a show of force. A tornado of domination will be unleashed, unprecedented in the history of the world in terms of revolutionary scale and scope. It will make the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 look like a children's game. We will bring our noble fight to all those who bear arms in service of the established government to be deposed, to those considered members of the federal forces because of their ability and order to destroy, apprehend, kill, and obtain our freedom-fighting soldiers. Now, that kind of, that kind of shit. And uh, though there were many organizations, as we heard about uh, up top with all the different acronyms, organizations with different names and different ways they claim to be helping, seems like they all work just about the same way as far as structure. Uh, each time Nadelfed entered an area to set up ops, aka operations, an organizer's first duty was hassling a key activist or activist for the names of all the people they knew. And in some cases, without prior approval, they began to use the activist's name, thereby boosting credibility. Immediately, they started creating files, names, addresses, schooling, activities, and political backgrounds, excuse me, of potential allies or enemies. The master file cards were then sent to the main branch of Parente's Brownstone in New York. One member even later, uh, remember, uh, one member even later remembered uh, seeing cards with social, social security numbers on them. Uh, they knew exactly who to target with their phony communist revolutionary bullshit. Once Nadelfed Central Operations sent the following memo to a regional operative. Uh, we request that you conduct an inquiry into the groups and or individuals 
who are working in either the Joanne Chesmar Defense Committee or the Phil Shinnick Defense Committee. Any information that you can find out about these people would be very useful to us at this time. What we want is an overview of who is involved and where these groups are moving. This will enable us to get an idea of other forces moving in the new Brunswick entity. Thanks. Nalfet also wouldn't hesitate to uh, resort to outright theft to get what they wanted. Real Watergate shit. If no one cared about Watergate because no one important was involved and the stakes were very low. Over a year period in the New Brunswick area, there were 10 break-ins of organizations, offices, and homes of activists. Nadelfed members were behind all of them. And during the fifth break-in, a key Nadelfed field organizer, organizer was caught in the act. The only physical thing they stole was a TV. One TV. <laughs> Why were these revolutionary masterminds still on a TV? And intel on random activists they wanted to recruit or intel on opposing activists they wanted to harm somehow. Uh, it was all done in preparation for the master plan, a master plan that members constantly referred to as the master plan, a plan that mostly revolved around discussing a supposed massive gun stockpile somewhere in Sacramento that in all likelihood never existed. <laughs> One ex-member later told reporters, Parente told us there was a plan to surround and take over police stations as part of some sort of romantic revolutionary plot. New members quickly found themselves sucked into this, uh, you know, lifestyle, fueled by cigarettes, very little sleep, canned food, a 24-hour day uh, packed with commitments that gave them no time to reflect on whether or not they were actually helping vulnerable communities or doing any revolutionary shit. And if a member criticized Parente's plan, there was retaliation. There would be brutal, unthinkable torture carried out, kind of. One ex-member explained on several occasions as punishment, she had to sit on the floor for 12 hours straight forced to listen to Gino read shit that he wrote. <laughs> ah, how is that real? Oh my God, I love how absurd all this is, how laughably pathetic. But also, listening to that motherfucker drone on with his pseudo-intellectual babble, his revolutionary talk for 12 hours, I mean, that would be torture. I can see somebody just being like, enough! Just stick some shit under my fingernails already! Waterboard me or something! If I hear you say strata one more time, I'm gonna bite off my own tongue so I can drown in my own blood. Uh, another member shared a bit of insight into the inner workings of this group saying, uh, this is how they get you to stay. It's like the Moonies, which is a group uh, we are going to suck down the road here. Uh, first, they give you a meal with meat. <laughs> I got to back up. I forgot how ridiculous this quote is. This is how they get you to stay. It's like the Moonies. First, they give you a meal with meat, which is real special. Gino's three women then make you comfortable, put you in a room. When you're tired, he comes in and reads and talks to you. After this long process, I felt trapped. I just knew that. What? <laughs> you were trapped because he, he read to you and gave you special meat? Like, what is happening? And yes, Jerry Gino is sleeping with these uh, three women. Of course he is. Cult, cult, cult. Uh, professionals they'd managed to recruit, such as doctors, lawyers, college professors, would be allowed to keep their well-paying, influential jobs while turning over money and contacts to Nadelfed. Cult, cult, cult. Most of the rest will be told to quit their jobs, leave their old lives behind, and devote all of their time and energy to the party. And many would. By 1977, Nadal somehow actually seemed to have, uh, you know, a bunch of members touring all over the country, people operating as organizers and also spies on other organizations. An article written by investigative journalist Harvey Kahn for a political watchdog magazine called The Public Eye would describe these touring members. Harvey wrote, Couples of organizers, one male and one female, have been touring the country over the last several years trying to set up cadres to aid and organize unrecognized farm workers and the unemployed. America's poor. They represent the National Labor Federation. These organizers then hustle to gather up contacts, key, uh, lists of key activists and academics. 
All are pressured to lend their names, host organizers in town, and give more names of local people to contact. According to some, a typical, though aggressive, organizing drive. But before long, the organizers who appear fatigued from overwork and undernourishment have assembled files complete with 3x5 index cards, which show personal data on most of the community's activists. While Harvey was skeptical of why they were doing this, he also couldn't solve that mystery. He wrote, The true political basis of the National Labor Federation, NATLFED, itself an umbrella for locals like Eastern Farm Workers Association, California Homemakers Association, Eastern or Western Service Workers Association, and Western Massachusetts Labor Action, is a mystery. Local NATLFED organizers tend to tease potential cadre with informational tidbits only to retreat while muttering about a loose coalition somewhere. Later, the same organizer whispers of a party, then smiles in response to a battery of questions, verifying that no leadership actually exists. NATLFED members have also aroused curiosity by claiming to have large gun stockpiles. They promise to deliver all this and more. Despite no one seeming to understand exactly what the fuck these guys were up to, NATLFED seemed to be recruiting more volunteers than ever, especially at colleges. Some college administrators even paired up with NATLFED organizations and offered up their students, right? All kinds of dipshits, the educated and uneducated alike, teachers and students, want to become a part of this mysterious revolution, right? Give my life meaning, Jerry Gino. At Sacramento State College, California, uh, students were assigned by school administrators to work with the California Homemakers Association for class credit. Uh, Friends World College in Huntington, Long Island, assigned students to the Eastern farm workers. Not, not surprised about uh, Friends World College, uh, now known as LIU Global. This uh, college with a student body of less than 100 uh, students was extremely radical. Uh, a quick glance at some of its history, it made Berkeley look conservative. Not sure what the vibe is now. Uh, Antioch College in Ohio sent students for a time to the California Homemakers Association for course credits, but then canceled the arrangement when charges of cult-like conditions at CHA started to surface way back in the mid to late 70s. When questioned by reporters, one Antioch school administrator remarked, much of what you're telling me about this group I've already heard from students. We canceled the program due to the lack of truth in advertising. Canceled the program after getting scammed by revolutionaries. So how was this group so successful at colleges? Well, the very short answer is it was the mid-1970s. The little bit longer answer is uh, it was the end of the biggest cult formation era in American history, as we've discussed so many times before in previous episodes. The counterculture was breathing its last dying breaths. Kids across America were still rejecting the conservative ideals of their parents. Kids questioning the integrity of their government, the ideals of capitalism, maybe more than they even had a few years prior. Thanks to the Watergate scandal and subsequent congressional hearings revealing that their government had in fact lied to them over and over and over, including lying to them about why the U.S. entered the fight in Vietnam, a fight that had killed many of these college kids' older brothers. Also, many of these students were dreading graduating into the crashing economy of the mid-70s. Felt to them like if there was a, ever a good time to dedicate themselves to changing the fucking world, it was right now. Nadalfed preyed on these feelings of uncertainty and idealism. Nadalfed made these kids feel like they could join and become a part of something so much bigger than themselves. A revolution. Get it on the ground floor. So that when the existing regime is toppled, you will have special status in the new world order. A lot of these kids probably felt like they could become the types of revolutionaries they'd only read about in history books. Nadalfed also used the good old-fashioned allure of joining an Illuminati-type secret club, one that claimed to trace its history decades back to some real revolutionaries who really did shit. Nadalfed's made-up history, written about in a document they titled Genesis, traced a fake trail from the old Communist Party of the 1930s through the progressive labor groups uh, guerrilla training in Cuba during the early 60s, 
Guerrilla struggles in Guatemala around 1966, the Bay Area Revolutionary Union, United Farm Workers Union, and just prior to forming the Eastern Farm Workers, the uh, Venceremos organization. All this mythology worked on a lot of young people. Now let's meet one of them. We'll have to deviate away from our timeline to get to know a young woman named Sonia Larson. Sonia would go on to write a memoir about her time in the cult, Red Star Tattoo, My Life as a Girl Revolutionary, published in 2016. Uh, so thankful that she shared her story. This kind of insight for me is what made this story worth telling this week. Uh, Hail Nimrod and Hail Sonia, or Sonia. Uh, before she gra- uh, ever joined the group, Sonia's life was far from ordinary. As a young child, she lived with her parents and uh, older sister on a hippie commune outside Montreal, Canada, called the Sweetgrass Commune, where the adults were so poor, they sometimes ground up acorns into some sort of coffee substitute. Never heard about that before. And smoked cigarettes rolled with sage leaves. Holy hippie. Uh, Sonia's mother was born on a Native American reservation where her mother's father, Bud, was stationed at a mission. He was a Texas-born preacher for the Church of the Nazarene, just like his father before him. Uh, he preached stuff like women weren't supposed to wear makeup and dancing was forbidden. He was very socially conservative. And when Sonia's mother got pregnant at 16, Bud was completely ashamed of her. Almost disowned her, made her get married outside of town so it wouldn't be listed in local papers, so it wouldn't embarrass him. The marriage lasted less than two years, uh, and then Sonia's mother met Sonia's father, a smart, funny guy who played the guitar, born in a working-class neighborhood in Milwaukee. He told her he would be happy to adopt her daughter, Sonia's sister, Patty, so they got married. And nine months later, hail Josefina, Sonia was born. Soon the family would move, spurred on by the Milwaukee race riots of 1967. First, they went to Hawaii. Eventually, they'd make their way to the Sweetgrass Commune in Quebec. In some ways, Sonia had an idyllic childhood with the Sweetgrass people singing in sweetgrass blues bands at old folks' homes and high school dances, selling wildflowers, daisies, and goldenrod, tourists in the city. In other ways, her early life was all about indoctrination, made her a perfect revolutionary cult candidate later in life. As a child, Larson was taught about the duality of existence. A comrade explained dialectics to her as the struggle between opposing forces, night and day, hot and cold, communism and capitalism. Her mother told her, when the revolution comes, everyone will have to pick a side. So she's been hearing about that shit her whole life. Sonia was taught that God wasn't real, nor was Santa Claus. Kids didn't need more than a couple toys. All they needed was to work hard on the commune. Be a good, mindless, industrious, soulless, insignificant little worker ant. Care not for yourself, but only for the communist colony. I continue to truly struggle when it comes to seeing the appeal of the communist lifestyle. It sounds so fucking bleak and horrific to me always. I guess I'm just an individualist at the very core of my being. Uh, after a few years, the frigid Quebec winters quickly lost their appeal for the Sweetgrass crew and the commune splintered, with most members packing up for the warmth and bounty of California. Many of them were Americans, having previously dodged the Vietnam draft by heading up to Canada, and now it's time to head back home. At the age of eight, Sonia would join them embarking on a cross-country trip with a man in his early 20s because, as she put it in her memoir, everyone knew that a kid was better than a dog or a woman for hitchhiking. What the fuck were her parents thinking sending their eight-year-old daughter off with some dude in his early 20s across the country. That is fucking gross. Uh, Sonia packed her possessions into a canvas backpack, a sleeping bag, a drinking cup that collapsed flat into a little case, two matching wooden bowls, her spork, uh, her teddy bear, some clothes, a toothbrush, her traveling papers, and pounds of homemade granola. And she made it to California where she reconnected with her mother. Eventually, her parents split up. Her dad moved back to Montreal to pursue work as a, uh, in the field of a low-level drug dealing, while her mother volunteered with the innocuous-sounding California Homemakers Association. Right, a clandestine recruiting wing for fucking Parente's bullshit. Uh, 
Sonia stayed with her mother hanging out with the uh, CHA. Sonia did see some good coming out of the group she was working with, even though the outside world seemed to disagree with them. She would describe seeing it uh, in new recruits' faces, saying, a eureka moment when they understood that being poor wasn't only about bad choices and bad luck. What happened to people, the way they ended up poor and powerless, was not an accident, but an essential product of the system itself. But the real discovery was that someday it was going to be different. If it motivated people to get up and start advocating for themselves, it couldn't be that bad, right? Well, unfortunately, uh, it could. It could because someday it would never come because there was not going to be some bullshit revolution as promised, right? They're just being lied to. All his other lives would uh, likely be so much fucking worse if the revolution came. Overall citizen happiness, not exactly off the charts in Mother Russia at this time. Uh, soon, Sonia would find out that the California Homemakers, Homemakers Association was one organization under the larger umbrella of the newly opened Reading branch of the National Labor Federation. Fucking Nattlefed, right? Uh, Sonia spent a lot of time in the Reading Nattlefed office. Occasionally, that branch was called the Western Services Workers Association. The Sacramento and Oakland branches were the California Homemakers Association. The Oregon branch was the Northwest Service Workers Association. All connected, she finds out. Sony knew her local chapter was affiliated with a variety of other organizations, like the Coalition of Concerned Medical Professionals, Coalition of Concerned Legal Professionals. A part of Nattlefed before she was even an adult, before she was even a teen, Sonia worked at a food and clothing bank in the office and a soup line in the park. Uh, she participated in food drives and shifts, handing out leaflets around town. Slowly and steadily, Nattlefed became her whole life. While she used to spend most of her time with her mother's friends, hippies from the old Sweetgrass Commune, the Women's Center, and the Rape Crisis Center, now these women were being replaced by people from Nattlefed. No more random hippies and liberals, only people truly dedicated to the revolution. Members' apartments began to be called safe houses. When she missed a volunteer shift, her maturity and commitment to the upcoming revolution would be questioned. Sonia was moved around with her mother, living in these uh, apartments, I mean safe houses, with dozens of other people, some of whom she knew, some of whom she did not. When she turned 13, members of the California Homemakers Association made her a birthday card. Happy birthday, Sonia, accompanied by a paper cutout figure holding a gun. Revolution! By eighth grade, Sonia had dropped out of school to help her mom with the California Homemakers Association to help with the revolution. Around that time, she was also molested by her mother's boyfriend. Happened several times, once when Sonia fell asleep in her mother's bed, another time on the couch in the living room. And because her childhood was so fucked up, because she was surrounded by so much crazy, she didn't even realize the time that she was being molested or that it was wrong to be molested. She didn't know if what had happened to her was actually bad or just something that the straight world would condemn, you know, like skinny dipping or, or smoking weed. By the time she was 13, she had been surrounded by casual sex for, month, uh, sex for months, if not years, walking in on people, fucking it become somewhat normal in this strange little cosplay, cosplay commie community. Um, members might even ask you if you wanted to watch, right? Cult, cult, cult. Sonia was careful not to say anything about her mother's boyfriend. She was worried that if she did, it wasn't only her mother that would lose him. It was the revolution itself. And he was too important to this revolution that would never happen. Uh, but after she'd been assaulted several times, she did want to leave. She left for Montreal, uh, you know, made it to a welfare agency who started investigating her, or I'm sorry, she made it to, left for Montreal around the time a welfare agency started investigating her mother for some kind of fraud. Now, so young, she's on her own. 1981, when she's 16, she makes it to Brooklyn, still alone. Uh, soon ends up taking residence at the Nattlefed headquarters, right? The heart of the beast. Where a row of unassuming brownstones uh, in Crown Heights secretly housed the operations of at least 100 people preparing for the revolutionary day, or revolution day, which was February 18th, 1984. 
Sonia was told that within 40 hours, starting on that date, the U.S. government would come under the party's control as the group organized a general worker strike, jammed telephone lines, and carried out aggressive nationwide military action. Oh, fuck yeah. Be ready, comrades. The hour of action draws near. Soon we strike at the cold heart of the bourgeoisie. We will jam their phone lines, all of them. Or... Or at least the ones that we do not need to use ourselves for communication. So we will jam some of them. Uh, There are a lot of phone lines in America. So we will probably need, as I am talking this out, to dramatically increase membership for the specific purpose of simultaneously disabling thousands of phone lines. Shit, there might be tens of thousands of phone lines. The more I think about the phone lines, the first order of the revolution is going to be getting an accurate assessment of the totality of America's phone lines. Uh, Sony said that the man giving out orders at uh, HQ was a slick leader. Sony described him as having the oily sex appeal of Jim Jones and the raw magnetism of Charles Manson. Under the guise of the impending revolution, Old Man, as he was called, exerted total control over his followers. Old Man, of course, being Parente. No longer a small-time dipshit con artist running raffle scams and reciting Shakespeare to fucking nerds at diners. He was now a fully formed cult leader at the height of his weird powers. Sonia also heard that Jerry Gino, now in his mid-40s, referred to as Oldie, Field Commander, Vincent Ramos, Vic Elder, Eugenio Parente, or Gino. Uh, <laughs> she threw herself into preparing for the revolution. The phrase after the revolution was now being commonly used as a prefix for many conversations between comrades and in letters exchanged with her mother. Right, It was a certainty. February 18th, 1984. Put on your fucking calendar. Day of America's Reckoning. Sonia, like other members lucky enough to work at HQ, attended nightly classes with the old man. For these classes, Gino Cool Guy (laughs) would wear dark aviator sunglasses indoors and a Hells Angels uh, biker vest with a black t-shirt underneath that read, Yea, though I walk through the valley of death, I shall fear no evil, for I am the meanest motherfucker in the valley. Like he actually wore a shirt that said that. Oh, fuck yeah, but no more dorky Shakespeare recitations for this motherfucker. Uh, he's basically like a commie, just a, uh, you know, MC one percenter now. He, he He's the poor man's uh, Toots Martinez. Hey, Toots Martinez here. Founder, godfather, original charter president for the Cleveland Steamers Motorcycle Club. I just want to say that I never had nothing to do with fake-ass Gerald Doden, fake-ass Mexican, fake-ass revolutionary. And speaking of ass, just a reminder, because I'm still being misunderstood. My nickname of Toots is in regards to the sound that my first bike used to make when I started up as a kid. It is not in reference to any sort of flatulence. And Steamer is still not to a newly dead body, to steam coming off of said body, not to an act of defecation. Anyway, take care and happy riding. And remember our motto, the Cleveland Steamers. When there's barbarians at the gate, you gotta drop a deuce. Been a long time since Toots swung by. Fucking love Toots. Anyway... (laughs) That's confusing. Don't even fucking worry about it. Anyway, in the early hours of the morning, students like Sonia sat on folding chairs on a couch on the floor in the hallway. Most had clipboards in front of them taking meticulous notes. <laughs> My God, is on Gino's fucking nonsense as he droned on and on. Can you imagine taking notes on Gino's speeches? Um, did he just say Strata again or was it Cadre? Uh, these classes took place at the National Office Central or NOC. Where during daylight hours, volunteers would spend 12 to 14 hour shifts typing directives to local branches. Directives explained in painful detail 
how to hold more profitable bake sales, how to recruit doctors, how to run food banks and winter clothing drives, how to recruit members, both to Nattlefed and to the secret branch that Sonia had only just learned about after being around Nattlefed members for years, Communist Party USA Provisional Wing. There were three apartments at National Office Central, a main one where the old man taught and the members had their dinners and classes. In that apartment, there was a sleeping room where everyone slept on a pile of mattresses. Uh, Beside that room, almost everyone, because beside that room was the cave a small room where the old man slept and where he fucked. Details on that soon. Uh, the bedroom detail I do find funny. In, in a true communist society, in theory, right, everyone is equal. Only one strata. All for one and one for all. A classless social system with one form of public ownership and the means of production and with full social quality of all members of society. But communist leaders, do they ever truly live like everybody else? Or do they at the very least get their own private fucking room with their own mattress while everyone else sleeps next door packed in like sardines? Uh, The organization owned three four-story brownstones at this point on Carroll Street, 24 units altogether. Most of the units they rented out to raise money for the revolution, but they kept uh, apartments in two separate buildings and had the entire basement for their cause. And that basement spanned the length of all three buildings. There was also a small additional walk-up apartment in the Lower East Side and another apartment in Park Slope. Sonia moved from place to place, sleeping on spare beds, couches, and gym mats on the floor. But back to the lessons. Old man, a.k.a. Parente, had two assistants, Polly and Mary T., who changed tapes in his tape recorders, lit his cigarettes, refilled his coffee as he gave long rambling lectures on revolutionary history, and sucked his dick and stuff. Not kidding. Uh, Both women were recruited as teenagers, Polly when she was just 15, Mary when she was 17. Typical cult leader shit. Uh, At these classes, the old man would say things like, Truth is the collision of an objective and a subjective reality inside your own mind. For a revolutionary, the truth of the revolution is impossible to deny, since it corresponds to the objective reality of the oppression of the working class and our subjective concept of justice. In other words, kids, there ain't no justice. There's just us. I, uh, I don't think he's necessarily wrong there. Uh, but also, he's making it clear that You know, ethics are subjective, which can definitely create a new reality that is very good for a cult leader, very bad for the followers. He told the group that young people had fought in revolutionary struggles throughout the world, Spain, Cuba, China, Russia, and Vietnam. And he told them it would be their job on the mornings after night classes to go pick up donations around the city. They'd be on the road eight hours on a bad day, 10 to 12 on a good one. And these donations would not be made to the Communist Party provisional wing. They were donations to the Coalition of Concerned Medical Professionals a branch organization that claimed to be giving low-income people and migrant workers access to health care. Uh, they took food donations as well, supposedly for low-income and migrant workers. But what really happened to that food? Well, they ate it themselves. Fueled themselves for the war ahead. Uh, the donated food fed everyone back at the Brownstones, even when they told people giving it to them that they were given the, the cheese and milk and fruit to malnourish migrant kids on Long Island. They also solicited telephone donations, cold calling people for money, uh, and did so much clerical work. They had to type fundraising pitches, recruitment pitches, drafts of new leaflets. They would only take a break for dinner, eating in front of the TV as they watched PBS. Then would be back to work, sometimes on watch duty, making sure there weren't any capitalist pig threats lurking in the blocks around the brownstones. If there was no class, they'd be in their assigned sleeping spots by 11 or 12. Sonia often slept on a mat underneath a drafting table in one of the organization's actual businesses, a design studio in Park Slope. Sounds fucking lovely. She also wore the underwear that the organization bought in bulk for its members and toted around the same style of vinyl overnight bag from a bankrupt travel agency. All these kids being kept tired, overworked, confused, their individuality stripped. Cult, cult, 
cult. And though members were permitted to roam the city to do their jobs, there were so many rules they had to follow as they did so. No watching TV or movies or reading books that were non-political for one. No discussing organizations, business uh, in public places. Secrets, secrets, secrets. Everything about the organization had to be referred to in code. Code words came from that manual, the essential organizer, uh, the FIN committee. It is just one eye. Uh, raised money, the pro, short for procurement department, got stuff, uh, food, clothes, anything and everything. Uh, B-E-N-E or benefits, uh, Benny, distributed out to people who needed it, um, uh, as in people in the cults, not starving kids or migrant workers or anything. Transportation was the TRX department. There was a name for fucking everything in the organization. Proper way to do things, a right way to ask for donations or rides, uh, a right way to sort clothes in the free clothing closet. Everything, and I mean everything, had very specific instructions with too many words. Every hour of every day was mapped out and color-coded on a large whiteboard back at HQ. When members arrived back after a long day, there would be new colors on the board, new tasks next to their names. For much of the first year, Sonia was uh, happy to do her job. She took pride in it. Felt like she was contributing to something important, something bigger than herself. Jerry Gino feeding on her youthful idealism. On Christmas, she and the other members uh, ate turkey, took half the day off. And on New Year's Eve, they took the whole day off, drank whiskey and beer, sang until the early morning. St. Patrick's Day was the same, but, you know, sang Irish songs. Then on Sonia's 17th birthday, uh, Parenti, Jerry D, the old man, called her down to his office. Huh. Wonder where this could be going. Uh, Jerry had on a Western shirt with a bandana tied around his neck because I guess he's cosplaying being a fucking ranch hand now. And he motioned to a small wrapped box on the coffee table. Inside the box was a pelican fountain pen, black with a gold band around the center. Pen that probably would cost about a grand now. Weird that he wasn't using the basic, not fancy, right, you know, proletariat pen, just like his fellow comrades. It's almost like he doesn't walk the walk. He offered her a bourbon, uh, but said that he didn't drink himself. Then put on a Roy Orbison record, started telling her about his past with Largo, how they once hatched a plan to blow up the Shasta Dam and flood the whole valley around Redding, California. Fucking capitalist pigs. Before she knew it, uh, Sonia was telling him about a, the boyfriend of her mother's who had molested her. She was crying. She was drunk on bourbon. And then she left the meeting feeling closer to him than ever. And at 17, Sonia would now be accepted as the youngest full member of the Communist Party USA provisional wing. As a party member and not just a volunteer member, she could hold an office in the local cell, put forward motions for discussion. She could now join something called the military fraction. She was important in this little micro-environment. The explanation was that fractions were all the parts you needed to have a whole thing. The Mutual Benefit Society were part of a labor fraction. The organizations that mobilized lawyers and doctors, part of a professional fraction. And now there was a fighting fraction. You know, for the definitely going to happen revolution coming up quick. The big one with these fucking ding-dongs take over America. Other cadres now taught Sonia how to take apart and put together an M1A1, which she did using a dime that she had to keep under her tongue when not in use. She learned how to slide the eight clip into the gun, studied military manuals, diagrams of guns, readying herself for eventual fight. They actually did have some weapons out in New York. Uh, Being on military duty also meant other things like being an example to everyone else. Sonia was instructed to volunteer first when people were needed to bring in the food or the laundry or to not complain about stuff like cooking dinner two days in a row. Sometimes she didn't see how folding 60 pairs of pants constituted revolutionary work, but she did it. She reminded herself, like she'd been brainwashed, that this doubt was the remnants of her capitalist way of thinking, her own silly ego getting in the way. But even to her, the lines between the provisional wing and the National Labor Federation remained blurred. Despite being in the inner circle now, she still didn't fully understand the structure of all this. Uh, She found out stuff uh, that left her feeling more confused, like how the chair of the provisional wing, a woman they called Struggler, 
not Parente, was the field commander for the upcoming revolution. By this time, there was less than two years to go until Revolution Day. Sony was seeing Parente more than ever, listening to his conspiracy theories, such as how the newly reported AIDS virus was really a CIA experiment. I mean, I, I wouldn't actually be shocked if that was true. Uh, the old man also gave her uh, weird fucking tasks like translating a Haitian newspaper, uh, writing the song lyrics out from the from an Edith Piaf record. I also started getting a little handsy. This is 1982, right? He's 44, she's 17. Starts touching her on her back, stroking her hair, you know, uh, telling her about how he'd already slept with the two girls that worked for him as secretaries. She remembered him once saying, uh, I fucked her on the desk, made her go back to filing while her knees were still shaking. So cool, you know, cool guy, not cringy. Soon that girl would hand Sonia an envelope of birth control pills. By that point, Parente, the old man, the horny cult leader, was calling Sonia all hours of the night, asking her her thoughts on politics, motherhood, life in the field offices, what she liked about rock and roll, how tight her pussy was, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, when she went to his office, he sat down on the couch. He put his hand on her knee, uh, her thigh. He's grooming her. Before long, he's asking her, uh, you know, what got her off, calling her a pretty little girl. And young Sonia liked it. She hadn't felt safe in a long time, not since her mother's boyfriend had molested her, but she felt safe now with Parente. And how fucking sad, right? The predator masquerading as the nurturer. Not uncommon, actually. Soon, I think we all saw where this was going. The two start sleeping together. Parente frames their sexual escapades as him helping her. He's helping her figure out how to orgasm, how to be less frigid, how to enjoy sex. That's right. He's a giver. Oh, fucking Jerry Gino. And then he gets possessive. When Sonia starts developing a crush on a young cadre named John, old man immediately sends him away. Within weeks, Sonia uh, was, not even, uh, was not on any kind of revolutionary duty anymore. Her only job now was to get Parenti's clothes out, dust his guns, fill his pens, make him sandwiches, you know, fuck him every which way but Sunday. Uh, he was a you know, controlling and demeaning asshole, typical cult leader. Once he made her make seven eggs for him before she got it exactly the way he wanted it. Uh, nightly now, she would sleep outside his office on the floor like he was like she was a fucking dog in case he needed anything like sex. Uh, but sometimes he would get that itch scratched from someone else, even when she was sleeping right outside the door. Uh, once she heard him spanking his secretary, Polly, with a riding crop for the revolution. Hi, all Sasparilla, away! He went full fucking Captain Whiskerhorn on her. If you know, you know. Uh, like she'd been told, Sonny kept her mouth shut about all this. She also kept her mouth shut when Parente started fucking another new member, young woman named Jane. On her 18th birthday, Parente, still also fucking Sonia, gives her a sheer pale yellow blouse, asks her to model it for him, braless, which she does. He's always doing shit like this for him now. Soon as late March, 1983. Revolution only 329 days away. Members start getting more and more stressed out like one woman, Barbara, who began praying at all hours and constantly washing her hands. And that annoyed the fuck out of Jerry D. So the old man now asks Sonia for a small, teensy, tiny favor. Just a little favor. He asked her to straight up murder Barbara. He said it happens in war all the time. No big deal. Right? She's probably going to die in the revolution anyway. We cannot win the revolution, comrades. If some of us are too busy washing their hands to grab their guns and kill capitalist pigs. We cannot overthrow the factory owners. If someone looking at you, Barb, keeps giving away our location thanks to loud cry prayers. Sonia actually agrees to off Miss uh, Washes Her Hands and Prays Too Much. Why is she praying, right? The commies have no God. Uh, she chooses Prente's silver 45 pistol to do the deed. Then just two days after a uh, word, she tells the old man she'll do it. Uh, but then when she looks for Barb, she can't find her. Barb's gone. Sony still doesn't know what happened to Barb. Uh, maybe someone else killed her. Maybe she got wind of having a target on her back and fled. 
Or maybe she just got too stressed out to continue. Following her exit, more comrades vanished. At the beginning of the fall of 1983, there were 80 elite revolutionary comrades in the safe house in the surrounding area. By the winter, they were down to 63, almost a 25% drop in membership. Uh, to deter more members from leaving, some women uh, caught trying to escape are now beaten. Others still escape, though. People say stuff like they're going to go to the basement to get some potatoes and then just, you know, head out the back door and never come back. Despite this trend of members exiting, Parente has more women under his sexual thumb than ever. The plans for the revolution may be collapsing, but he still has a pecker that is not going to suck itself. Uh, Jane, Susan, a woman named Beth, uh, Sonia, maybe more are satisfying the old man. One day, Sonia finds uh, these other women's underwear tucked into the folds of Parente's couch and a tub of fucking Vaseline hidden under the cushion. Remnants of an orgy, perhaps. Cult, cult, cult. Then there's another new girl, Tanya. And Tanya truly is just a girl. Sonia thought she was 14, maybe 15. She originally, uh, she had originally come to the Brownstone to visit her grandma, then got roped in by the old man, who then made her another one of his sexual pets. Uh, Sonia confronted Parente about this, but the old man dismisses her and then punishes her. Reassigns her to work alone in a small, dark room, organizing everybody's schedules hour by hour. No more sleeping outside the old man's door either. Be gone now, Jezebel. Uh, soon after this, Parente starts beating Struggler, the woman who's ostensibly the chair of the provisional wing, his field commander. Shit's breaking down, devolving, getting weirder, like it always does in these cults, especially in doomsday cults, right? And this is a doomsday cult. Instead of an apocalypse, instead of a second coming, there is the revolution. And just like false prophets know their prophecies aren't going to actually come true. And they might lose their followers and all the sex and stuff when the promises go unfulfilled. You know, false revolutionaries No, there's actually not a revolution coming. So it seems like Jerry Gino is getting all the fucking in he can before this big fantasy world he has built comes crashing down around him. Nine days before the revolution was supposed to begin, Parente makes a surprise announcement. Nobody's going to work that day. Instead, they need to regroup. Take a day. Figure out exactly what the fuck they're doing. Everybody gathers into one big room, trapped really, supposedly to regroup, but really just being held hostage. They have to ask the old man for permission to go to the bathroom. It's feeling real Jonestown all of a sudden, right? He's fucking droning on and on with his weird lectures. Next day, another curveball. Parente declares that the man he had, uh, he'd had working as a bouncer just the day before an escaped murderer named Harold needs to be killed. Parente tells Struggler, his field commander, she has to kill him. Why? Because everything that had happened, the recent steady disintegration of the group, it was all her fault. Sony now waits in terror for Harold to be killed. She's getting wild in the cult, cult, cult. Now let's shift focus away from Sonya and reconnect with the overall cult in the timeline. Not that we're not already doing that a bit. Just one day before the professed revolution is supposed to begin, Friday, February 17th, 1984, the cult's brownstones are raided by the Federal Joint Terrorist Task Force. Fucking FBI agents storm the compound. How convenient for Jer Bear. Also, check out how truly pathetic this next scene is. After nearly a decade of rallying the troops around a big, game-changing, world-power-shifting revolution. How delusional were all these people, by the way, to think that was possible. Uh, Jerry Gino goes down like the silly little bitch he always was. <laughs> As armed FBI agents entered the compound, Jerry Gino, brave, fearless, brilliant, communist revolutionary leader, yelps out in pain after throwing himself down the dumbwaiter shaft in a desperate attempt to escape. <laughs> Instead of escaping, this dumb fuck breaks his leg and then lays helpless at the bottom of the shaft and waits for agents to come help him out. <laughs> the agents of tyranny are descending upon us, brothers. They fear our strength. These capitalist pigs cannot defeat us, comrades, as long as our solidarity remains unbroken. 
We must stick together. He then lifts up the door to the dumbwaiter shaft. Be brave, comrades. Show strength. He starts to climb inside. I will be right back to lead us. I just uh, forgot my machine gun down in the basement. Ah! Just fucking breaks his leg. After being dragged out by agents, Jerry Gino is carted away in an ambulance. Ah! Other members are then detained in the courtyard as the FBI agents bring out boxes of possible evidence to examine. In the harsh winter light, Sonia can see uh, how pale everybody is in comparison to the cops and FBI agents, right? They just never get out. They're just trapped doing weird work all the time. The FBI, in a prepared statement that night, uh, said the raids were based on information received by the FBI in August 1983, which alleges that the Provisional Party of Communists had planned a series of violent acts to be committed within the United States. Said the FBI's goal was to interdict a terrorist action prior to violence and destruction of property. No arrests were actually made, but agents did take papers from three locations, two in Brooklyn, one in Manhattan. And then I guess arrests weren't made later because, again, the FBI had no respect for these clowns once they really looked into things. They weren't going to do shit, right? Just pretenders, phonies, cosplaying at being revolutionaries. The next day, Saturday, February 18th, 1984, the day of reckoning that Gino had been preaching about for 10 years, almost. Uh, the old man, instead of bringing America to her knees, will instead whine to journalists about how he suffered four compound fractures on his right leg during the raid. He said the raid was preposterous, adding he had no idea why authorities might have staged it. Asked about the Provisional Party of Communists, he said, I've never heard of it before, unless it's something new. Oh, man, some fearless leader. Meanwhile, the members try to pick up the remnants of their old lives back at the Brownstones, right? They're still making dinner, brewing coffee, smoking cigarettes, watching the street, you know, looking for FBI agents, vans parked across the street, did surface occasionally with men staring at the brownstones with binoculars. Uh, back at the brownstone after his hospital stay, Jerry Gino lives for a while in a haze of painkillers that some of his ex-medical students got for him by forging doctors' names. And this pathetic fuck shouted new orders about shit like, you know, newsletters that had to be written, calls to action. And everyone was like, ah, I guess so. Everyone was moving sluggishly now. Any sense of urgency was lost, right? Of course. Everyone seemed to know now on some level that the revolution, you know, it was just a farce. Morale is very low. They'd been building towards February 18th, 1984, for years, sacrificing their time and energy and finances, their fucking lives. Some of them literally getting fucked by this douche. And now the revolution is not happening. You know, what are they doing now? I'm sure many of them wanted to leave, but sunk cost fallacy, right? They'd already given so much to the cause. Many still weren't ready to admit to themselves it had all been for nothing. They don't want to face that embarrassment. So like cult members do over and over again when the writing on the wall makes it so painfully clear that they have done nothing but allow themselves to be exploited and wasted their time, many still stayed. They hang around, wait to see what's going to happen next. They live on the same delusion and hope that they've been living on this entire time. Old man is embarrassed. He's stewing in his shame. He's crueler than ever now. Right? He fucks with Sonya now by giving her impossible tasks and slapping her if she corrects him. About a month after, uh, after about a month of that shit, uh, she had enough and she leaves for good. It was just a few days before her 19th birthday. She initially stayed at her father's house in his guest room, then got a job as a telephone solicitor for summer timeshares. Uh, later, turned out that the whole summer timeshares thing, also a scam. Yet again, she found herself helping some dickhead pull some bullshit. She must've been like, are you fucking kidding me? Again? She leaves, gets a job as a waitress at a sports bar next and finally moves on to a much more normal chapter of her life. Starts to heal a bit from all the bullshit she had gone through for her entire life. Meanwhile, the FBI is wondering exactly what it was they had on their hands with Fed and the Provisional Party of Communists. Uh, later, a California resident would tell the FBI about Jerry Gino's cult-like authority, but uh, there just wasn't enough evidence, I guess, to make any arrests. A few months later, July of 1984, a woman named Mia Pryor escapes from the group, 
gives authorities a bit more info that will lead to something at least. She tells police that several members had re- uh, resorted to fraud and forgery to siphon thousands of dollars from her trust fund. When she escaped, she left behind checks for a bank in New York account that held her $30,000 a year trust fund. Two members of the group, including Harold Jones, that escaped murderer from Massachusetts, forged prior signature on one of the checks and stole 700 bucks. Jones was arrested and charged, but the case against him was dismissed so he could, you know, go back to prison for the whole murder conviction. Uh, no idea who he murdered, by the way. Looking for info on him is tricky because there's another much more notorious murderer uh, with the exact same name. Daniel Foster and Amanda Reed, both members of the group, are sentenced in 1986 to six years in prison on charges based on Pryor's allegations. Despite being down a few members, life at the Brownstones continues. For many other comrades, not the same. Uh, Things are falling apart, but it continues. 1985, Jerry Gino, now in hiding somewhere, dictates a document that rails against the current members of the organization. The document kind of shows us the general direction things were heading in after the raid. Uh, This little excerpt says, Because of recent flooding of our entities by boozers, users, born losers, police agents, informants, spies, quizlings, traitors, turncoats, wayward internal cadres, and probationals, the following procedure is to be used in the cases of multiple AWOLs. Internal cadre with legal, alcohol, financial, drug problems, history of insubordination, or breaches of discipline. And then it goes on to talk about, you know, how to get rid of undesirable members. Uh, But that wouldn't really happen. Because no one really respects him like they used to. Also, uh, who says Quislings? <laughs> it is a real word. It means a traitor who collaborates with an enemy force occupying their country. So it's a real word used correctly. But also, sounds like something out of a Harry Potter or a Lord of the Rings movie. Comrades, we must purge our ranks. Quislings, orcs, halflings, hobbits, elves, dragons, ring rates, goblins, and more have infiltrated our cadres. Uh, according to ex-members, the organization did suffer a big influx of such persons after the FBI raid, uh, you know, with uh, with real dreams of a revolution now dead or dying. Members who were actually once excited by the cult's communist ideology largely left and they were replaced, it seems, by bottom of the barrel opportunists, you know, just looking for a free ride. The NOC, for example, had a resident alcoholic who would run off, get completely drunk somewhere, then return to pass out on the front lawn, but still be accepted back into the group because they were desperate for members. One of the Politburo staff was an addict who would run off for several days at a time and then return when he ran out of drugs, you know, be allowed back in. That wouldn't have happened a couple years earlier. Several recruits that came to NOC were previously homeless persons that appreciated good food and a place to sleep, but would always wiggle out of various duty assignments. Various bedrooms were no longer viable as workspaces, always filled with cadre who were down because they were sick. Rumors of traitors and spies abounded, but somehow, despite HQ being a shit show, Nattlefed keeps making money. In 1986, it was reported that the Eastern Farm Workers Association profited from an auction of art donated by esteemed painters and sculptors, right? Because in the outside world, a lot of these groups have not been connected still. They still aren't today. In August of that year, a woman named Viola Mitchell was introduced at a farm workers dinner as the new director of the National Labor Federation. She said the organization's goal was to end the conditions that cause poverty, but refused to answer any other questions from the press declaring that they were welcome to learn more if they first volunteered to work for the organization. Cut to eight years later. January of 1994, sitting in a wheelchair, alternately breathing oxygen from a machine and chain-smoking Lucky Strikes, Jerry Gino, the old man, only 56 years old, but looking like an unhealthy 80, gives the last lecture we have a record of to a room packed with, you know, devotees, but probably use that word loosely, 
Uh, he wore fringe black leather and sunglasses at two in the fucking morning because he's cool. Uh, some women still uh, were around him. Yes, he still has cult women. They'll crush out his cigarette stubs, wipe sweat from his brown chin, and he'll drone on for hours. Uh, many of the listeners will fall asleep <laughs> during his speak. The whole scene is, is pretty pathetic. In a tape recording of the lecture, Parente's droning is interrupted by long pauses, disconnected asides, and hacking, coughing, and spitting. And here's some of the, uh, the dumb commie shit he said. This is a continuance in the historical chronology of dislocations, phenomena that deals with the cracks in the floor. Trotsky, in his related writings, gives Stalin a next-to-invisible role in the process that was taking place there, saying he was a mere minister of minorities. During the Civil War, there was 24 other armed struggles going on inside what was the Soviet Union. Socialism retreated from a single state, single rule of socialism, he says, his coughing breaking sentence. And when I think of war, I think of war again. Oh, boy. Those who are for the revolution before, from time to time, none needed more space in order to actually go and set up administration or leadership in one place or another. They find themselves unrepentant. They find themselves revealed and confused. At the end of the lecture, he declares, Patria o muerte! Because he's a fucking hack. Uh, that is Spanish for country or death. Che Guevara or uh, Fidel Castro. One of them said it first in the 60s in Cuba. Both would end speeches with it. And it would become the motto for communist Cuba. Uh, sometimes uh, venceremos would be added to the end, which means we will prevail, right? Country or death, we will prevail. <laughs> what was left of his followers, now they, they now jump to their feet. They echo the shout. Then his wheelchair is rolled away with, quote, military precision. <laughs> what a fucking sad clown. His one chance at true rev- revolutionary confrontation, and he falls down the fucking dumbwaiter shaft, breaks his leg and cries about it. But, you know, viva the revolution, country or death. Uh, Jerry Gino is like, if there was an action figure of Che, he would be the generic toy version of that. Just the Kami guru. New from the makers of Fighting Man, Atomic Man, Flying Guy, Warrior Woman, Attack Cat, and Prophet Jeffrey. It's Kami guru. Do you want a revolution? Do you want to overthrow the capitalist pigs? Cosplay. Do you want so many cadres? Kami cosplay. Do you want only one strata? Kami cosplay. But also don't want to actually fight? Kami Kami cosplay. But also might need to slide down a dumbwaiter shaft? Kami Kami cosplay. You need Kami Guru. Kami Guru can talk the talk. Cosplay. But Kami Guru don't walk the walk. It's just talk. It's just Kami talk. Kami Kami cosplay. Kami Guru will rant about settling the score, but you'll never have to fight in any war. It's just talk. It's just Kami talk. Cosplay, cosplay, Kami Guru. Revolution, comrade. Kami talk. Cosplay, Kami talk. Kami talk. Complete your action hero people set today. Fighting man, flying guy, warrior woman, attack cat, atomic man, prophet Jeffrey. And now, Kami Guru. Still maybe coming soon. Karate lady and spy person. <laughs> anyway, uh, don't even worry about what just happened. That was jarring. Just put it out of your mind. Put it out of your mind. Uh, a little over a year after that lecture, March 18th, 1995, Jerry Gino will pass away at the age of just 57. He dies in the Colts Crown Heights apartment of congestive heart failure. He was buried at Oak Hill Cemetery in Stony Brook, New York by the organization he founded. And his gravestone, oh wow, it is full of lies. It reads... <laughs> Eugenio Mario Parente Ramos. Not his real name. 
November 21st, 1935 through March 18th, 1995. World-class revolutionary fighter. Nope. Internationalist soldier. Literally never fought. Son of the American working class. Maybe. Theologian, philosopher, historian, teacher, writer, broadcaster, machinist, farm worker, labor, and community organizer. Maybe. Gentleman and friend. No. Beloved comrade. Maybe. He fought at Armageddon, and his armies will march forever. Oh, fuck no. With abiding love and solidarity. Uh, holy shit, I want to piss on that fucking grave so bad. The delusion. <laughs> That's, that sack of shit was a world-class revolutionary, uh, just like I was once a world-class dunk contest competitor. I've never been able to dunk. Uh, he was a world-class grifter. I'll give him that. Uh, the New York Times printed his obituary, and uh, then a correction. The initial obituary relied primarily on information from two close associates. Daniel Fisk and Christopher Day called him an organizer of migrant and seasonal laborers and a close associate of Cesar Chavez in the United Farm Workers Organizing Committee. The Times was then contacted by his former wife, the woman he never paid child support to, some former colleagues and longtime critics of Jerry Gino, to which there were many. And after fact-checking the initial obituary, the Times issued a corrected obituary the next day. Uh, that one stated that he was actually Gerald Doden, the leader of a group that has been characterized as a cult. Bingo. Uh, sadly, his cult would outlive him. Yep, we have more to talk about. But you knew that based on how much time is left in this episode. Damn you podcast players. Uh, after Jerry Gino died, a struggle emerged out of the sad, pathetic power vacuum. His death left between East and West Coast factions of his group, still blown away that this guy was the leader of any group, let alone a group with East and West Coast factions. Uh, the leader who emerged was a woman named Margaret Rybar. We don't actually know a ton about her. During the first year of her leadership, she aggressively operated a campaign of better, fewer, but better, a.k.a. the purges. Many cadres were forced out of the organization, several by violent means, I guess, while most uh, were forced out through psychological or emotional abuse. She then changed the agenda of the group from initiating an armed struggle against capitalist pigs to a, quote, passive revolution. And she would say about the revolution, kind of like the motto, I guess, the new motto, when it comes, it comes. Dear God, just when I thought this couldn't get more ridiculous, that is the most uninspiring revolutionary motto I have ever heard. What do we want? A revolution. And when do we want it? Um, I guess whenever is fine. When it comes, when it comes, it comes. <laughs> uh, right away in the summer of 1995, Margaret began sending persons from national out to the field entities to start rebuilding. Uh, she built up the few organizations that were still recruiting heavily for Nadelfed like Suffolk Eastern Farm Workers Association. They continued to recruit cadres regularly. Uh, Women's Press Collective in Brooklyn also was doing well with recruiting. The main headquarters was moved to the offices of the Western Services Workers Association, a front group in the San Francisco area. Uh, the former Brooklyn headquarters still housed members, and some of those members got into some trouble on November 12, 1996, when police raided the Brooklyn Brownstones. Uh, this raid was triggered after a concerned neighbor no uh, spotted two girls, eight and 10-year-old sisters, who never seemed to leave the apartment complex. Uh, there also seemed to be more children, at least five, that never seemed to go outside and play or go to school. Concerned, a neighbor called authorities. The girls were taken to Kings County Hospital, placed into foster care. Uh, sources don't say about the other five kids. Police identified the girl's mother as Lisa Burns, 27, said she would be charged with assault and child endangerment as well as weapons counts. Authorities also discovered 16 handguns, 26 rifles, five shotguns, two Thompson submachine guns, one air gun, 13 knives, three blackjacks, and five pounds of explosive powder. 
Uh, and that was, you know, obviously concerning. Approximately 30 people would eventually be taken into custody, six of them charged with possessing illegal weapons, and one who was said to be beating a child with a belt, charged with assault, and endangering the welfare of a child. Otherwise, Brooklyn police said they did not know of any illegal acts committed by the group. In fact, they didn't know the group had existed uh, very long prior to the raid. As 30 people were arrested, other members sat on the stairs and sang Amazing Grace. Police Inspector Michael Collin, not long after the raid, said, We're looking into whether they're a cult. And we're looking into exactly what they were doing with all those weapons. No further arrests were made, but the press now ran with stories of a cult existing in the middle of Brooklyn. The publicity would make its way to several ex-members who would then provide the public with more info on this secretive group. Jeff Whitnack, an ex-member living in California who had joined the group back in 1981, was one of those ex-members. Let's dive into another focus on one person's view of all this nonsense again now. Prior to joining, Jeff worked hauling garbage for six years in Chico, Fairfield, and Richmond, California. He was good at it. He'd run through the route four to five hours, still get paid for an eight hour day. Uh, He liked to work outdoors, liked the fact that he could go anywhere in the country and without too much trouble, find a job to make a living wage. In addition, he'd also been taking nursing prerequisites at a local community college, thinking that he might someday enter a nursing program. Uh, One day on the job, he lifts a particularly heavy can, throws out his back, then descends into a hell of trying to get workman's comp. Uh, waiting for months for late checks from the insurance company, constant and demeaning visits to various doctors and lawyers who insinuate he's faking his injury. Finally, after a year, he has to admit to himself that he can't go on hauling garbage for a living. He starts a rehab program, opts for a career in respiratory therapy, learning the high-tech practices of ventilator management in an intensive care unit. And there he sees many people being kept alive, quote unquote, on ventilators after every organ except their hearts had failed. And he's witnessing capitalistic medicine he feels being carried to the extreme. What is the point? It's just families being charged for nothing. He decides uh, he's being trained for bizarre and cruel situations that often make the hospital money at expense of the patient's health or at the expense of the patient's family's financial you know, health. He gets into activism now, but, it, but feels like the Bay Area activist scene is a bit stale. Sees a bunch of trendy short-term support groups for like LGBT rights, the third world, prisoners, whales. And in his view, they don't accomplish much. He finds himself in a state of personal, economic, and ideological crisis. As he would put it, I used to joke to my friends that I should sue over my back injury for developing a secondary disease called Paul Petitis, or Petitis, or Paul Petitis, I don't know, just made up word, uh, affecting the politically sensitive areas of the brain and leading to chronic outbreaks against the bourgeoisie and the professional henchmen. <laughs> well, this crisis leads him right to Nadelfet. Jeff had previously been involved with the political group collecting medical supplies from the East Bay, to be sent to aid Nicaragua. One afternoon in early 1981, he'd been busy sorting through some of the supplies in a Berkeley church when he ran into an old acquaintance and they caught up. By the end of the day, the guy pulled him aside, said he had something to talk to him about. Jeff's intrigued. As soon as the sorting is done for the day, they walk out to the back door or walk out the back door and go sit in his friend's uh, new Volkswagen rabbit to talk. On the way out of the church, he asked Jeff if Jeff was a cadre to any organization. When Jeff said no, he seemed relieved. The friend talked uh, for two hours to him. The friend started out by referring to the recent trip he had made to Nicaragua. He then moved to, uh, on to painting a picture of the Nicaraguan revolution as one instigated by a super clandestine group, the Sandinistas, who operated helpful associations to aid the poor in Nicaragua, like mutual benefit associations or benefits associations. Then he said there was a group a lot like that acting in the U.S. right now. And he gave Jeff two phone numbers. One was for the California Homemakers Association. The other was for the Coalition of Concerned Medical Professionals, right? We've heard of both of them. He was to call either number and use a special code word to signify he had the introductory lecture. 
He was supposed to say that he was a friend of Carlos and asked to speak to a woman named Brooke. Right? How mysterious and exciting this all is. Is a new revolution a brewing? Looking back on all this later, uh, Jeff would, well, I guess this would be the same revolution we went over before. Jeff would, uh, looking back on this, would come to believe that this uh, rigmarole was not done for any kind of security purposes. It was theater. It was to prove that a new recruit was willing to buy in and play the cosplay game. The next Saturday, he tours both the CHA and CCMP offices and is impressed. Signs up immediately to canvas a neighborhood for dues. Everyone there seemed sincere, dedicated, interested in their projects. Uh, there was a, variety of acti- uh, a vast v- array of activities, canvassing, house meetings, outreach, phoning, bucket drives, uh, general medical sessions, well-child sessions, combined with the vast membership base in low-income areas from coast to coast. All this seems legitimate to him. The thing that really impressed him was the Coalition of Concerned Medical Professionals since he had been studying respiratory therapy. CCMP held weekly general medical sessions and bi-weekly well-child sessions. At these sessions, community members received free comprehensive medical care uh, from medical professionals, supplies, and volunteers that have been organized by Nattlefit. So they did do some good uh, on this, you know, while they're also doing shady shit. And it seems like this is all exactly what Jeff was looking for. After a few weeks of volunteering with Nattlefed, Jeff is invited to attend a huge revivalist-style meeting called the National Labor College now, uh, a thing carried out for recruiting purposes. Potential recruits are given a speech on the secretive nature of the meeting. They're given envelopes with a secret address to go to another, uh, to go to another place, told not to open their envelopes until they are in their vehicles. More mystery, more theater, right? These assholes really went all in on pretending to be important revolutionaries. Jeff gets an envelope, opens it in his car, drives across the bay to San Francisco, enters a hall at the UCSF campus where he had to sign in. The speaker is Dr. Marcus Celine, a former sociology professor from a college in Ohio, a man later given the title of Western Regional Political Commissar, right? Such an important guy, on par with Fidel Castro, really. At one National Labor College meeting, Dr. Celine claims to the audience that a provisional party member had just recently been killed in El Salvador after having been sent there on assignment from the provisional party to fight alongside their purported sister organization, the FMLN of El Salvador. This lends an air of importance and seriousness, you know, to the group, gives them credibility. Over the following months, Jeff goes to a bunch more silly bullshit meetings like this, and here's a bunch more lies. All of this designed to make, uh, you know, dipshits feel like they're part of something so fucking important. Whenever he can, Jeff now works full-time for Natal Fed, which is, uh, which is often over 18 hours a day. Cult, cult, cult. Then at the end of his spring break from respiratory therapy school, he drops out as requested by Natal Fed and goes to work as an organizer full-time. At this point, they clue him in on the history of the organization, right? Genesis again. Included in Genesis is the claim that Jerry Gino's group is the officially recognized representative of Cuban solidarity in the U.S., supposedly through another group, the Organization of Solidarity with the Peoples of Asia, Africa, and Latin America in Havana, Cuba. The provisional, it's uh, OSPOL. Uh, The provisional wing told its members that OSPOL was now the centralized Western Hemisphere Communist Clearinghouse. All this fucking terminology. uh, Based in Cuba. They further claimed that their sister organizations in OSPOL included the Cuban Communist Party, the Nicaraguan Sandinistas, El Salvador's FMLN, and Chile's MIR, and then a whole bunch more, right? They're the real deal, everybody. But just two months after he joins, Jeff leaves the group. As he would put it, one day while returning from taking some new volunteers out on a canvas, I asked a woman volunteer to pull her car over, whereupon I opened the door and got out. I walked to a nearby BART station and escaped. I never went back. 
Said he left because he was angry that he was expected to accomplish 10 times the work he could in 18-hour shifts, already way too long to be working. He'd slowly begun to suspect that the whole situation was purposefully set up to create a pressure cooker, boot camp style atmosphere. Obviously, nobody could engage in intellectual discussions in that atmosphere, confused and fucking exhausted all the time. And Jeff started to think that was on purpose, right? That is what cult leaders did to members. That's some Jim Jones shit. Also witness how provisional wing members passed themselves off as actual members of foreign military forces when they weren't. Began to dawn on him that being a cadre in their organization was a mixture of being a con artist and a hitman. Or a con artist who dresses up like a hitman like he's going to a Halloween party, except it's not Halloween and there's no party. And what's more, the deadline for revolution, that 1994 date, seemed utterly ridiculous to Jeff. Like, did they not know how powerful the U.S. military was? So one day he spoke up right before he left uh, and went to the BART station. He said, while I'm impressed with this organization and its potential for growth, I don't expect uh, to see us holding power that soon. He told that to his Oakland leader during a meeting he had where just the two of them were present. Seeing Jeff's skepticism, skepticism, she replied that the deadline was nothing really definite, but was rather an adjustable guideline to keep them from being too complacent. Uh, But then a month and a half later, Jeff was at a National Labor College meeting and one of the national leaders uh, blusters out the 33-month deadline is real. The leadership of this organization has their theoretical and real necks on the line. So if you've been uh, so if you've been just an irregular volunteer or some half-assed schedule, get real. Jeff made up his mind right then and there. He was quitting. This is madness. Soon he'll begin talking to other ex-members and he finds out just how much bullshit he'd listened to over the past couple months. Just about everything he had heard was fucking lies. As one ex-member who helped found CHA in Sacramento in 1973 remarked to him, I heard people claim that they were in uh, Venceremos when I knew they weren't. I don't doubt they would lie if they thought they could use it to their advantage. Everyone he talked to said that Nadalfed had no international ties, no legitimacy. The whole thing was a sham. One former volunteer wrote to him, at first sight, the work here seems ideal. Low-income people have an organization which is working in their interest. You read about this positive impression in my previous reports. After three months of experience with this project, however, I must report that reality is very different. Members are told that this is their organization. To the contrary, most members outside New York do not even know about the National Labor Federation. The structure is ambiguously organized from top to bottom. Members are at the bottom of the hierarchy. No decisions are made collectively. Members do not have any power of decision. It is a lie if they are told that they themselves are deciding about the organization. I have been told that volunteers are not supposed to be thinking about what they are doing. Volunteers and members are not taken seriously, but are being used. They're being lied to if it is useful to the organization. I've experienced these lies often. Financial matters are totally obscure. Some money goes to the top, but almost nobody knows where to, particularly not to the members. As soon as a volunteer criticizes anything, he will be interviewed by a trained coworker. It appears to be just like an interrogation. Systematically, he will be driven into defense. Nobody will listen to the problem. He is just a stupid volunteer. I have never known criticism to be really listened to. Contacts to the outside are severely limited. I do not know anything but work. You may ask why I do not face my conflicts here. The militarist structure and the way in which conflicts are dealt with are incompatible with raising criticisms internally. It is assumed that anyone who does not like the way things uh, as they are leaves. All who are of different opinions are stupid and ridiculous. One who does not cooperate is a murderer because he allows poor people to continue to starve. I am told that the only way for real change is through this organization. I do not want to cause any panic, but this organization is dangerous. Yeah, man, no room for dissent. Cult, cult, cult. And Jeff concludes that Nadal Fed is indeed a cult. And he starts writing about that and he gets some stuff published. 
Over the next decade, he'll come into contact with more and more ex-members and hear their stories. You know, a Brooklyn high school student who sought a community service credit but vanished for three years instead. Beatings, imprisonments, tribunals. He'd heard that female members were warned that the streets in Brooklyn were dangerous and that they should never venture out alone, uh, sealing the Colts members inside the walls of the brownstone where some would be sexually used and abused by Jerry Don and others. After the 1996 raid, Jeff would comment again, warning people of just how persuasive this organization could be. It's like this overwhelming current that sucks you in, he said. A lot of really good people got deflected into this for years. Jeff also talked about how the 1984 raid saved the group, saying that it actually probably gave Parente a handy excuse as to why the group wasn't in power by that year. It actually seemed to serve his purpose to have a raid. Why didn't we have a revolution? Well, we got attacked, Jeff theorized. At a time when it may have been dying out, the raid breathed new life into it. Cutting away from Jeff now, back to New York. November 13th, 1996, District Attorney Charles Hines announces that six of the arrested cult members will appear before a grand jury. Three members in their mid-40s are arraigned on felony weapons charges. Two others, a 46-year-old and an 84-year-old, issued summonses for trying to sneak past police back into the building after it was evacuated and charged with endangering the welfare of a child is 27-year-old Lisa Ann Burns, mother of the uh, child taken into foster care. All the others were let go. At a news conference at one police plaza, made, uh, Mayor Rudolph Rudolph Giuliani, Hines, and several top police officials preside over a display of items taken from one of the three townhouses owned by the group uh, at 1107 Carroll Street. The display included weapons, badges, bulletproof vests, a pair of yellowed organizational flowcharts that resembled childlike drawings of spaceships. Yeah, why not? Firearms and seized included shotguns and a semi-automatic Tommy gun replica. More damning stories would come up in the days following the news conference. One of them would belong to a former member named Irene Davidson. One day, years later, uh, uh, Irene, excuse me, one day, years earlier, Irene and her 18-year-old daughter were walking through a festival in Prospect Park when they noticed a table covered with progressive slogans, manned by a group calling themselves the Women's Press Collective. If they signed up, the members told the two women they would get to write progressive things for their newsletters. Irene's daughter would live with this group for three years now. Started with members incessantly calling her daughter, convincing her to visit the group's headquarters on Carroll Street. Once there, the young woman subjected to painfully long lectures, right? I picture someone uh, less gifted with public speaking than Jerry Gino, maybe reading his old gibberish if it wasn't Jerry himself. As comrade Jerry Gino, Father Claude once proclaimed, when the revolution begins, the blood of the tyrants will fill the streets and that blood, this is important, that blood uh, must not be the blood of unarmed housewives or school children or elderly people with dementia residing in assisted living facilities. Uh, the blood, uh, this also this is important, uh, will not be the blood of jugglers or buskers, uh, other sort of street reformers who are neither in favor of nor opposed to current regimes, uh, but merely trying to put food in their bellies uh, with tip money earned by uh, moderately entertaining. Uh, are you listening? Pay attention. Uh, moderately entertaining civilians passing by. Just like that for hours. Uh, within months, this young woman would be living there full time. They really confused her. It was impossible to have a conversation with her because she only talked about the cult and their goals. Irene would remember. Almost three years passed before the group shipped the daughter to a small field office upstate. And there, luckily, the young woman got depressed and finally left. Man, best depressive episode ever. Thank you, depression, for saving my ass. Uh, meanwhile, other ex-members and ex-volunteers were now telling the press about another planned revolution. Mm-hmm, right? Former volunteer of the group, speaking to a reporter working for the New Jersey Star-Ledger, said, The revolution was supposed to start in New Jersey after they set up temporary employment agencies, paid the workers more money than they usually earn, and won millions of supporters. This is a plan that they didn't get to carry out because of the 1984 raid. Oh, yeah, totally. 
I mean, I mean, if that 1984 raid wouldn't have happened, they for sure would have gotten millions of supporters. Following this bit of press in 1996, info on the group becomes scarce again for quite a while. It's unclear what the group was up to for much of the 90s and early 2000s. Still difficult to know what's going on uh, now, as persons recruited after 1995 are especially reluctant to talk about experiences after leaving the organization. Many, uh, they still believe the organization will come after them. Or maybe, excuse me, maybe they still believe. Maybe they're just waiting for the right moment to step forward. Maybe they were, uh, you know, just so few that were recruited that only a handful of people know uh, what actually happened. What we do know is that Struggler, right, the field commander who would go by the alias Mary Struggler on a blog dedicated to ex-Natalfed experiences was kicked out of the group at some point and eventually died of leukemia. And uh, poor Polly Sasparilla, former secretary to Jerry D, who sometimes got her bare bottom spanked, showbiz, uh, with a riding crop, died of untreated breast cancer. Also, many of the regional organizations seem to have continued operations, perhaps independently, perhaps not. Definitely still recruiting college kids, organizing volunteering committees, and so on. Also still creating new front organizations. 2003, a poster on a website called IndieBay.org warned, be careful, referencing something called the Commemoration Committee for the Black Panther Party, uh, CCBPP. The CCBPP is a front organization for the National Labor Federation, NATLFED. They are a very creepy outfit, more like a cult than a political organization, the poster wrote. NATLFED gains members through innocuously named fronts, recruiting through street fairs, canvassing door-to-door and by phone, giving free holiday dinners, targeting the poor, and posting flyers. The fronts acquire volunteers who may be given work to help the poor directly and are definitely given work to support the operation to the front itself in the name of helping the poor indirectly. Other front groups include the California Homemakers Association, Western Service Workers Association, Western Farm Workers Association, and National Equal Justice Association. Please become educated about this group. They have already fucked up a lot of lives. I know because I watch people who should have known better get sucked in by these charlatans. 2004, Nate Leskovic, now editor of Performer Magazine in Boston, uh, infiltrated the Northeastern Service Workers Association as an independent journalist. This was the only way I saw getting any information about them, he said. I went in as a volunteer, did a couple of events with them, and went door to door with them. Tried to get a sense of how they ran things. He came away with an impression of an organization obsessed with its own version of communist doctrine. Despite some accounts that the group uh, had mellowed under Margaret Rybar's leadership, a 1996 Village Voice story said that she loosened some of the restrictions that prevent members from visiting their families. Uh, Leskovic was still troubled by the sheltered lives of the group's young volunteers. He wrote, these kids had given up all their family and friends. They were living in poverty, working and living at the office and doing nothing else and living off of food donations. They always, had the same clo- they always had the same clothes on. It's this kind of taking lives away from people. You could argue that, well, that's their decision. They could do what they want with their lives. But being around these kids, it seemed like there was more to it than that. It seemed like it was not their decision. They were never happy at all. There was not much laughter, never any smiles and the work. And they were always running around doing work. None of them seemed to have anything to enjoy in their lives. Uh, despite these occasional warnings, you know, overall, after being around for over, you know, 25 years now, They're largely still flying under the radar. And because of that, able to even get grant money for their little commie cult. The John Templeton Foundation gave $6,000 to a Nattlefed organization in 2004, uh, another six in uh, 2005. The uh, Halcyon Hill Foundation gave $20,000 to Eastern Service Workers of America in 2005 and 2006. The Daisy Marquis Jones Foundation gave $50,000 to ESWA Rochester in 2004. Illinois Bar Association gave 7000 to the Midwest Workers Association in 2002. 
And then 5,000 in 2003, 2004, and 2005. The Long Island Unitarian Universalist Fund gave 12,500 to Eastern Farm Workers of America in 2004. And all that money believed to have been funneled up to Nattlefed leadership. According to ex-Nattlefed members, all operations mandated to submit a minimum of 10% of all money to the national office. Uh, that included all these little, you know, little acronyms. 2006, Dan Roche, then a UMass Boston student and reporter for the mass media, wrote an article detailing his experience volunteering for ESWA. Started when he saw a few college students uh, tabling for the organization at his school. Nobody here makes a salary, the volunteer explained. As a full-time organizer, a member explained that his housing needs were met through our benefit program. I spoke with people who had long been separated from their families, Roche recalled. When Roche attempted to go home after 12 hours of volunteering, an ESWA member stood in front of the door. I almost had to use physical force, said Roche, right, to get out. When he phoned them to break his ties to the organization, he was told, I have your address here in front of me. And Roche considered that a veiled threat. Around that time, articles about ESWA, other Nattlefed affiliates began to be compiled in a now defunct blog at politicalcults.blogspot.com. The comments on the post were often by ex-members or the desperate parents of current members. One mother wrote, my daughter is planning to move there this summer. Please advise. I noticed they do not even have beds for these volunteers to sleep. Another comment read, my brother got recruited by, my brother got recruited at an on-campus table at Stony Brook University down on Long Island by a group called EFWA, Eastern Farm Workers Association, which is part of Nattlefed, same as ESWA. Uh, he ended up dropping out of school to devote his life to these commie bastards. He was going to be a dentist, but that never happened. He ended up living in poverty with these leeches, working 18 hours a day for no pay until he finally left on his own. He didn't come back to our family because he was ashamed of what he had done with his life because of these people. I ended up tracking him down and bringing him back home. You can't allow them to continue to recruit people on your campus. The damage these people did to my brother, to our whole family is enormous. And for what purpose? They're not helping anyone but themselves. Fortunately, I got my brother a really good therapist who has turned his life around. But not all ex-Nattlefed people recover from their brainwashing. A third comment read, point blank, Nattlefed is a cult. I can't believe Williams will continue to allow Nattlefed to recruit UMass Boston students on campus. He can be mindful all he wants, but the damage will be done without him realizing it. My sister was taken in by them in 1984, forced to work long hours with little sleep and was constantly barraged with communist dogma. I remember trying to talk to my sister and tell her that she should leave the group, but the damage had been done. She would have a blank look on her face when I talked to her and she would talk about her love for the organization. Through their brainwashing, she was convinced that her family was evil and she cut off all contact with us to live with them permanently in Brooklyn. Nanofed eventually shipped her to the West Coast where she was ultimately tossed out by the organization. Because she had cut off all ties with us, she never contacted us for help when this happened. She suffers from crazy delusions about our family and refuses to contact any of us to this day. Feel free to contact me for a family member's point of view about the evils of Nanofed, right? Cult, cult, cult. How sad. Uh, a one-star review on Yelp of the Eastern Service Workers Association posted in 2012 reads, I volunteer with them for four months. I found them to be deceptive to say the least. Many times I was asked to donate money while already donating my time. Volunteers are deliberately made to do unnecessarily manual tasks that could be automated with a database in a matter of minutes. This overly senseless labor is a deliberate tactic. The intention is not to actually manage the information, but to break down the volunteers mentally and emotionally. Insurmountable tasks lead to feelings of desperation. This creates emotional vulnerability into which influence of political and economic doctrine are inserted. The whole time, there is no external validation of the information they provide. As of 2009, they deliberately avoided using the internet 
Orgs that avoid external influence only do so to control the internal discourse. Please note, my original comment was flagged for removal. But as I said, do not donate money to these people. They will manipulate you. Worst off, they manipulate their benefit recipients. There are numerous reputable orgs in the area. Go there, not to ESWA. Wow, staying off the web since 2009 to avoid scrutiny. These weaselly motherfuckers. Uh, Many think this group or groups are still brainwashing people, still ruining lives today. Decentralized, disorganized, no apparent leader in charge, but still ruining people's lives. 2015, an ex-member of the Eastern Farm Workers Association, Robin Falberg, shared some of her experiences with the group in an interview posted to YouTube. When I was 18, Robin said, I decided I wanted to do something good for the world. I decided I wanted to volunteer for a year within an organization before going to college. Or with an organization. She ended up on Long Island with EFWA and would be there for 15 years. It was a 24-7 immersion in this philosophy that was held, by, uh, that was held up by untruth, lies. Eventually, uh, she left and she did end up doing uh, great things with life. She got an engineering degree and then uh, got a, a law degree. 2021, a Reddit user took to the r uh, slash cults subreddit with a post titled, Nattlefed is alive and well. In it, they explained that their sister was deep in the Nattlefed labor cult only six months earlier, working for a group called the Coalition of Concerned Legal Professionals. They wrote, a professor who maybe didn't know the harm of the org had recruited my sister from her community college. She was in a very vulnerable position at this time, as nearly any college student is, struggling with her place in the world, feeling like college was useless, to the suffering she saw, etc. Very valid existential human social crisis. They pretty much told her that they have the answer to the ills of the world, to capitalism, and it would never be solved outside of their theory and practice of politics. Six months later, she had quit her job and was about to quit college to give herself fully to this organization. They were tracking her emotions and crying, uh, grooming her for sex in the group. Man, still with that shit. Making her shower in volunteers' houses even though she could shower at home. Keeping her up late, working uh, constantly for no money at all. Sleeping on the floor, feeding her poor nutrition, uh, etc. God, there was so much to be honest. But when my family tried researching the org she was in, my mom couldn't find anything. Because their 40 plus year old organizing strategy has been operating under front groups scattered across the country. So hard to stop these slippery fuckers. Uh, I got down to business researching and I collected everything I could on the internet into one document. They have been using the exact same strategy and organizing for years and have achieved so little in their grand bastardization of communism. In the end, gentle prodding with critical thinking questions and empathetic listening while she slowly confessed the things she was uncomfortable with this whole time got my sister out. Hail Nimrod. I promised her any true revolution against capitalism would not be exploiting those trying to break us all free. Uh, she was courageous enough to get out and she went through intensive therapy to deal with trauma from the, from the manipulation. I know sometimes they do help people. My sister did connect a few people to lawyers and helped manage cases, but you don't need to give up everything to do this. Essentially, the cult is self-perpetuating. These folks give up everything to follow the ideology and they must keep recruiting people in order to sustain their basic material substance uh, like housing, living on the floor and food, canned food drives and dollar store meals. I feel for these folks. I think they all got sucked in because they wanted to see a better world. And now to question their beliefs will be to question their entire life. If they left these orgs shut down, they would uh, be homeless. Yeah, if they left these orgs shut down, often stranded in new cities to, to them with zero community to support them because the cult has alienated and isolated them. Anyways, I just wanted to share that this group is still out there preying on folks and I wanted to tag some more on the front names for easier research. That's a great post. 
And, and, and also one I would not understand or be that scared by if I didn't know all the backstory. Finally, just as recently as June of this year, June 2023, people still warning about the dangers of Nadalfed and its many front organizations. Posting in the Brooklyn and New York subreddits, a poster warns, hoping to spread some awareness about this group and help other folks avoid getting involved with an exploitative organization. I was approached by volunteers of the Coalition of Concerned Medical Professionals at a grocery store in Brooklyn and ended up volunteering with them for about a month. Long story short, they pressured me to give more and more of my free time, up to 12 hours a day, before revealing that they are staffed by full-time volunteers who work there 12 hours a day, seven days a week, with no pay. Prospective full-time recruits are encouraged to drop out of school, quit their jobs, and move into CCMP dorms, where they have no safety net nor outside support system. The CCMP does offer a legit service to the New York City community in the form of free preventative health care benefits and health advocacy. I know they work with doctors who volunteer part-time by offering free medical sessions, usually in their normal clinics, and I have helped them schedule blood work appointments and the like. However, they spend far more of their time and resources on recruitment, canvassing door-to-door and at grocery stores, farmers markets, college campuses, and churches. If anyone else has worked with them or received a benefit from them, I'd love to hear your opinion. I can't say my personal experience was entirely negative, but the exploitation and inefficiency I witnessed was in line with how former members have described their abusive practices. Wow. Uh, that fucking post is what brought this group to our attention, right? One of our producers, Sophie Evans, the fact sorceress, who has been with us for six years now, she lives in Brooklyn, uh, came across that on Reddit, was like, what the fuck? Did a little digging and then texted me and here we are, right? These sneaky bastards. I truly hope this episode can maybe keep at least one other person from falling uh, for their bullshit. Uh, if you see a member of some communist-esque community outreach program out and about, maybe really look into exactly what they're all about. Maybe pass up the opportunity to volunteer if you run into anything that reminds me, uh, reminds you of the shit you know, we went over today. Find some other group to be a part of, one where you can actually make a difference, one that doesn't abuse and manipulate as volunteers, one that doesn't want you to work fucking seven days a week, 12 hours a day. Fucking Jerry Gino, that pathetic rat clown might be one of the most successful cult leaders we've come across yet. Dude created a slippery system of organizations that due to its changing names and difficulty in connecting regional offices with national leadership who work under organizations of more different names, so hard to stamp these fuckers out once and for all. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. NATOFED, the National Labor Federation. What a wild one. The Communist Party, USA, Provisional Wing, all these acronyms, all different tentacles, the same damn cult octopus. How do you kill an organization like this? One where even as members are often confused as to exactly what organizations are tied together, how, how like they're connected to everything, who the current leader is, how the money flows. Was Jerry Gino crazy like a fucking fox? Did he mastermind this system? Right, they're apparently still around, still doing cult shit almost 30 years after their leader died, almost 40 years since their big revolution did not happen, almost 50 years since forming. Uh, though the group has been active since the mid-70s, it's only fairly recently that other than a few ex-members and journalists, the group has been recognized widely as a cult, or at least an organization practicing cult tactics. Though you could say that the organization has become less cult-like since the days of uh, Eugenio Parente and Sonia Larson. It's clear that from testimony found online, it still uses many of the same tactics, ends up uh, having the same basic effect when it comes to destroying the lives of its members. Uh, Reg Oliver, the executive director of the Chicago-based Cult Awareness Network, said his group 
continues to classify the National Labor Federation as a cult because it employs classic techniques used by religious sects, such as the Moonies and the Hare Krishna movement. Psychological manipulation is essential, says Mr. Oliver. Uh, They use deception to keep members unaware of true goals. Information is purposely withheld. Under the guise of having a mission, they create an authoritarian environment laced with mythical jargon. The purity of their doctrine is under attack by an evil outside world. There are indications of protein deprivation, according to our files. Right? Keep people hungry and tired and confused. Give them shit to do constantly. Don't leave them time to talk to old friends and family. Don't tolerate dissent or tolerate dissent. Make them financially dependent on continuing with membership. Maybe fuck them for good measure. Right? That's a cult. Eugenio Parente and his successors have controlled their cult members in a number of ways, but perhaps biggest of all is appealing to the desire to be good people and improve the world. After all, don't you want to be a good person? Don't you want to help those in need? It is important to help people, but not at the expense of your own health and the destruction of your finances. Then you're just going to end up uh, becoming another person who will need someone else to help them. Want to help? Well, volunteer uh, with an organization you know. Help a friend in need directly. Uh, Do some research and provide financial support uh, or your time to an organization that has a reputable background. Pay attention to how they treat you. No organization you're volunteering for should bully you. They shouldn't shame you. Constantly demand more and more of your time. You're helping them and you don't have to. If they start giving you a bunch of shit, uh, how about fuck them? Toss your clipboard or whatever in the trash. Just walk away. I mean, what are they going to do? Fire you from a job you're not being paid for? There are plenty of other places to help. And this one's going to stick with me for a while. Uh, I did not know prior to this week when it came to cults that you had to watch out for non-religious volunteer organizations. Makes sense, though, that a communist group would be behind this uh, all and morph into a cult, doesn't it? Bojangles thinks it does. As a political ideology, isn't communism inherently very culty? I mean, so many of its leaders historically are seen as some sort of father figure, godlike. Cult of personalities routinely developed in communist societies. Leaders are worshipped by followers, brainwashed by continual propaganda. Followers afraid to voice any dissent because dissent strictly punished. Mao Zedong, right? Kim Il-sung. Weren't they really cult leaders? Wasn't Stalin a cult leader? Stalin would receive ovations at his public appearances that would last 15 or more fucking minutes. So many statues of him. He was worshipped and feared like a cult leader. Communism doesn't allow its followers to own their own shit, right? They're dependent on the state and the state is almost never truly run by a group. It's run by a worshiped leader. So followers are depending on father, their cult leader for survival. I don't know. I just made that connection now. It feels real in the moment. Agree? Disagree? Send in some emails. Uh, Bojangles agrees passionately. Uh, Now let's head to today's takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, NATOFED is a slippery as fuck organization that unfortunately still exists. It was started in 1973 by line dickhead Eugenio Parente, real name, Gerald Doden, Gerigino, uh, who basically failed at being a revolutionary in California and then decided to shoot his next shot in New York. And as pathetic as it was, he, he did succeed. He didn't start a revolution, but holy shit, did he create a cult? The Communist Party USA provisional wing. Number two, people are still being lost to this predatory collection of shady organizations today. Be careful. Number three, NanoFed goes by so many other names. Uh, We talked about a bunch of them here, right? The California Homemakers Association, the Eastern Service Workers Association, Coalition of Concerned Medical Professionals, on and on and on. If you're going to volunteer for some organization, any organization, do your research. 
If they seem shady, fucking tell them to fuck off. Number four, it's unclear who leads NatalFed now. Uh, perhaps it is a decentralized organization that inherited many of the tactics and manipulative management styles of its predecessor. Or perhaps it just appears decentralized and there's some new Jerry Gino in charge. Number five, new information. Remember how we talked about uh, Eugenio Parente going to that conference in Philadelphia in 1973 for the National Unemployed and Welfare Rights Organization, NURO, right around the time he formed uh, NatalFed. Well, NURO was also a front group for its own crazy leader, a man named Lyndon LaRoche. Also being, uh, he's also uh, was accused during his lifetime of being a cult leader. Not sure he was, but he was for sure a kook. Uh, maybe Jerry Gino learned a thing or two about how to form a cult from this fuckhead. LaRoche was born in 1922 in Rochester, New Hampshire, created the foundation of the uh, LaRoche movement in the 1970s. Over the course of that decade, he would swing from the far left to the far right, advocating some of the most insane conspiracy theories out there. He denounced Walter Mondale as a KGB agent, Queen Elizabeth as a drug smuggler, <laughs> in the mid-80s, uh, presented a statewide ballot pr uh, proposition in California, which would mandate quarantines for all persons testing positive for HIV or AIDS. He alleged that he had been targeted for assassination by Queen Elizabeth, uh, Zionist mobsters, and associates of his who had been drugged and brainwashed by CIA, CIA spies. Despite being batshit crazy, also had a lot of power. Former author and political activist Robert J. Alexander wrote that LaRoche first established an intelligence network composed of people weirdly devoted to him in 1971. Members of his mysterious movement all over the world would send information to the movement's headquarters, which would be distributed uh, via briefings and other publications. LaRoche organized the network as a series of news services and magazines, which critics say was done to gain access to government officials under the guise of being a member of the press. Seems like he did gain that access. U U.S. sources told the Washington Post in 1985 that LaRoche... Uh, the organization had assembled a worldwide network of government and military contacts and that his researchers sometimes supplied information to government officials. Norman Bailey, formerly with the U.S. National Security Council, said in 1984 that LaRoche's staff comprised one of the best private intelligence services in the world. They do know a lot of people around the world. They do get to talk to prime ministers and presidents. It is estimated that, LaRoche, uh, that the LaRoche movement never exceeded a few thousand members but had outsized political influence, raised more than $200 million, and ran candidates uh, in more than 4,000 elections in the 80s. Noted for disguising candidates as conservative Democrats and harassing opponents. LaRoche even ran in every presidential election himself from 1976 to 2004 as a candidate for his organization's various third parties. He peaked in uh, at 78,000 votes in the 1984 presidential election. Thank God he wasn't actually elected. And now he can't run, you know, because he's, he's dead. Uh, he died in 2019 at the age of 96. I could say a lot more about him. Maybe someday he'll get his own episode. For now, let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Nattlefed, the communist cult still hiding in America, has been sucked. Uh, thank you to the team here at Time Suck. Thank you to producer Sophie Evans for such a great find and for the initial research today. Uh, thanks to Tyler C., the Suck Ranger, recording and editing again on this episode. Uh, and again, you can watch it on YouTube uh, in addition to listening and you can watch the special, right? Trying to get better out there right now. Uh, next week on Time Suck, we get historical. So quit bitching about a lack of history sucks. I don't even know if anybody's bitching right now. Uh, we learn about the Library of Alexandria. Yet another topic I've heard about practically my whole life, but don't know shit about. Let's get curious. The Library of Alexandria was one of the largest and greatest libraries of the ancient world. The mysterious contents of the library have fascinated writers, historians, dipshits like me, 
and scholars for centuries, a fascination fueled by the potential permanent loss of priceless works of literature and knowledge about the world. Library was founded by Ptolemy I Soter, king of Egypt, and his son, Ptolemy II, based on the idea of a universal library, a place that would contain all the written knowledge in the world. Ptolemy I and his son, Ptolemy II, seemingly made this dream a reality. The kings hired scholars to live and work in the library, making copies of original works, teaching, uh, debating, researching. People traveled from far and wide to experience the Library of Alexandria, Alexandria for themselves. The library was a place where people of different scholarly backgrounds or philosophical beliefs could come together to learn and debate. And it is estimated that the library housed somewhere between 40,000 and 700,000 scrolls. The library gathered its massive collection, largely by seizing original manuscripts from ships that would come to the harbor of Alexandria. And many believe that the library uh, was tragically completely destroyed in a massive fire around 2,000 years ago. However, conflicting records cast some doubt on that theory. So what really happened? Well, next week, we'll discuss the history of Alexandria and its founder, Alexander the Great, the Ptolemaic Dynasty, featuring some familiar names from previous episodes, uh, what we know about the ancient library, and a timeline of its destruction. Uh, right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. I love this first update so much. Uh, starting off with some great fucking news, Meat Sacks. Remember when I shit all over uh, New Madrid, Mississippi in the Emmett Till episode and I was worried that I'd lost all of my New Madrid listeners? <laughs> well, I still have at least one of those idiots. New, Ma- <laughs> New Madrid Meat Sack Landon writes, Dearest Father Dan, as a New Madrid resident, I would just like to let you know that the local Dollar General is in fact shit. Pro Pizza is mediocre at best and we pronounce it New Madrid because the Spanish pronunciation is too fancy for our tiny little no-good peckerwood brains to comprehend. Long-time fan and continuing listener, Landon. Landon, you killed me with this message. I'm still loving the word peckerwood. I find it so funny. Also, I just came across a new racial slur for white folks I'd never heard before. Uh, mayonnaise monkeys. Whoever came up with that one, kudos. Clever stuff. Uh, sorry you don't have better pizza. You know, it still isn't too late. Just to start walking out of town and never look back. Uh, now for some insights on the Dennis Nielsen suck from someone who didn't think that my Scottish accent was very fucking accurate. Fucking Todd writes in with a subject line of nice accent, fuckface. Hail King Cummins Magnificent. The subject line has nothing to do with his email. I just hope to get your attention. Even though that attempt at Scottish or whatever the fuck it was, was more like a creepy crocodile hunter than anything else. Uh, that's, that's fair. I'm actually pausing this week's episode because something really hit home with me. At the conclusion of the part uh, of the timeline where you discussed Nielsen's almost victim, Carl Stotter, you informed us that due to his trauma at nearly being murdered, he became an alcoholic. You further elaborated that his alcoholism is almost surely the reason behind his eventual death. That is why I would like to speak, or that is what I would like to speak on. While over the years, alcohol and weed have been called gateway drugs and gateways to addiction, I don't have to tell you that's completely false. You see, the real gateway to addiction is trauma. Trauma can be many more things than people realize. Sure, it can be nearly becoming a murder victim, uh, being sexually assaulted or abused in some way. It can also be things like being ignored by your parents, bullied at school, or even going to bed hungry. But I also draw the line at how you were bathed and washed by mom and grandma for fuck's sake. <laughs> Trauma is real and its path to addiction is real. Many people ask for shout outs for a loved one or a friend, but I would like to request one for the cult of the curious subgroup, the cult of the recovering. Uh, it's full of amazing meat sacks trying to better themselves and help each other to do the same. Anyone there who reaches out for help always gets responses and offers to assist in any way that we can. 
I don't exaggerate when I say that it can and probably does save lives. I, I bet you don't. Uh, you do not have to keep my name anonymous because while I'm not proud of many things I did in active addiction, I'm proud to be a person in recovery. September 22nd will be two years, Nimrod willing. In closing, I offer no apologies for the length of this email. If you don't like it, you can fuck all the way off. <laughs> JK, gosh dang. Uh, platonically love the fuck out of you. You mushed mouth, tongue-tied, rapier-witted, beautiful bearded bastard. Hail fucking Nimrod forever, Todd Hartman. Well, Todd, what a great message. Uh, sounds like that private Facebook group, The Cult of the Recovering. It's fucking awesome. And yeah, yeah, you can just find it. For anybody uh, wanting to find it, yep, you just go on uh, Facebook. Uh, you go to The Cult of the Curious page. And then there's like a little search column, you know, for the groups. And it's just, yeah, again, the cult of the recovering. And yeah, man, trauma, trauma and the shame and hurt and anger that can come from it. Not wanting to talk about it, not wanting to deal with it in a therapeutic way. Uh, hell yes, that can lead to an unhealthy relationship with alcohol or drugs, right? Anything to numb the pain. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And congrats on almost two years of being in recovery, you beautiful bastard. And now for a very special shout out request from a very special sack, Race Phillips. Hi, Dan. My name is Race Phillips. I'm a longtime listener of STD and Time Suck, recent space lizard, Hail Nimrod. My eight-year-old son even started listening to STD with me last year and absolutely loves it. Man, he's braver than I was that age. I let him listen to certain Time Suck episodes with me, always the historical ones because he has a thirst for knowledge. My oldest son, Racer Eli Phillips, passed away August, 20, August 28th, 2012. I know he would have loved your stand-up and podcast. If it's not too much, could I ask... You to give my son a happy heavenly birthday shout out on the August 28th time sick episode. Well, you got this message in on time, Race. Well done. Yeah, hell yes. Racer Eli Phillips can get a heavy or a happy heavenly birthday. Uh, Racer, shine shine a lot, uh, you know, a little light on, on, on your dad down here from time to time and let him know that uh, you're out there, ready to join him down the road in some plane of love and light. And I don't know, everything just fucking amazing. I don't know what it is, but I do believe... Uh, strongly that something's out there. I believe we continue to uh, carry on in some sentient form. I don't have proof and I don't care if you think this is all bullshit, but I believe it. So uh, see you out there someday, Racer Eli. I'll, I'll fill you in on all the silly shit your dad laughed at. Hail fucking Nimrod. And now time for the BetterHelp portion of the special edition of Time Sucker Updates. Big thanks to BetterHelp for partnering with me on this special segment. I'm going to share some advice given to me by Courtney Cope, licensed marriage family therapist and principal clinical operations manager at BetterHelp, and David Yaddish, licensed therapist and senior clinical operations manager at BetterHelp. I chatted with both Courtney and David at great length to ensure this advice is in line with healthy practices for better mental health. And just like last time, this is not me playing therapist. Okay, in this episode, going to answer some questions around relationships from our listeners. Let's get into it. First question. How do you handle the stress of your child being away at college? I feel this one. My son Kyler is heading off to college right now, and there have been so many emotions associated around this for me. So much happiness for him, but also I'm going to miss the hell out of him not being around all the time. One of my favorite people on earth and one of the only two people I have literally loved since their birth. It's such an exciting time for both of you. You want to be cautious not to have your emotions dictate this experience for them. If you are feeling anxious and stressed, you don't want to pass that on to them. Try to find some peers who are going through this as well so that you can normalize how you feel because I promise you, you are not the only parent who has ever felt this way. Especially if you have friends with older kids who have already done this, seek them out. Set some ways to stay in touch with your child. Share new things with them. Can you create a routine that will work for both of you to connect without being overbearing? 
for me, uh, we have a family text thread that we share music in. I would suggest finding some commonality like that. Can you text about movies or TV shows or books or hikes you're going to go on? We also have set some guidelines with Kyler as he's about to head off to college. We talk to him about understanding his need for independence while also balancing his commitment to his family. So for us, we told him that if we text him, he must reply to us within 24 hours, simply out of respect for us. We also shared with him that he's not allowed to turn off his Find My with the understanding that we won't be tracking him through his phone daily. We just want to know he's safe. If he were to not reply to us in that 24-hour window, we want to know that we should probably be calling somebody. We know it's tricky to balance a new life of independence. We suspect that the first few months, there's going to be a lot of missteps on both ends, and that's okay. We think if you are honest with your child about your expectations and ask them what their expectations are, you can become collaborators and find a system of communication that will work for both of you. It's normal to cycle through the emotions of fear, concern, excitement, joy, and so on. This is an accomplishment for both of you. So celebrate it. Give them space to grow. They can process on their own. Uh, Revisit your interests and pour back into yourself as well. Okay, I know that was a lot. And now for one more question. Another big one and a common one, how to deal with traumatic divorce, being separated from kids and ex speaking ill of me. Even when things are amicable with divorce, there is still so much to process. So first of all, make sure you're seeking help and support to manage all of these new divorce-related feelings. And be sure if you choose to seek the support of friends and family, you choose your support wisely. It's easy to choose people who will side with us. If you aren't going to seek therapy, you want to make sure that you're not picking support from people who are going to fuel your flames. Be careful not to put yourself in some echo chamber full of angry, bitter, divorced people. There is a time and place to vent, of course, but just recognize it can be easy to fall into a negative pattern. Remember, you are only as good as the company you keep. Right now, you need especially good company. Try to find ways to connect with things that make you happy and feel good, that distract you from the mess of things. It can be easy to think that what your ex is saying about you is true, even if you know it's not. Be sure to have bright spots in your life that will help you remain grounded in your truth. Even if you messed up, even if your ex is saying ugly truths about you, these mistakes you may have made do not have to define who you are going forward. If your child is asking you why your former partner is saying specific things about you, consider replying with, I don't know why mom or dad is saying that about me. And leave it at that. Keeping the kids out of the middle is so important. And not getting defensive in the face of your child is also very important. Your child is going to feel torn between two people they love. It's only natural. It's a complicated and confusing time for everyone. When possible, even when not amicable, can you come together to support and love your child, even if you can't personally get along? If you are going to share sensitive information with the kid or kids in order to defend yourself, you of course can share it with them honestly, but make sure it's on their level. If you can say things with kindness and thoughtfulness, it can also be very helpful in diffusing the situation. At the end of the day, no matter what the truth is, always remember that the person you are speaking about is still the child's mom or dad. We don't want to be the reason that our children have an issue with their other parent. So much good advice that wraps up this special edition of Time Sucker Updates. A big thank you to our sponsor, BetterHelp. And to Courtney Cope, Principal Clinical Operations Manager at BetterHelp, and David Yadish, Senior Clinical Operations Manager at BetterHelp. Courtney Cope and David Yadish's input is general psychological information based on research and clinical experience. It's intended to be general and informational in nature. 
It does not represent or indicate an established clinical or professional relationship with those inquiring for guidance. Their feedback is in response to a written question, and therefore, there are likely unknown considerations given the limited context. Also, just because you might hear something on the show that sounds similar to what you're experiencing, beware of self-diagnosis. Diagnosis is not required to find relief, and you'll want to find a qualified professional to assess and explore diagnoses, if that's important to you. If you or your partner are in crisis and uncertain of whether you can maintain safety, reach out for support, crisis hotlines, local authorities, have a safety plan. That can be done with a therapist too. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thank you for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Scared to death. Time suck each week. Uh, secret suck for each uh, each week for space lizards. Uh, please don't become a fucking communist <laughs> this week. And then also start a cult under the guise of being a labor organi- organizer who also launches a bunch of other fake labor and community support and advocacy organizations that all funnel cash to some collection of brownstones where a guy who wears sunglasses uh, too much inside, who fucks teens, who sleeps outside his bedroom door. Sounds like a lot of work and it's naughty. Don't be naughty. Just keep on sucking, you silly kooks. Bad Magic Productions. Hello, mates. Can you guess what voice I'm doing? Bloke who used to say things like, uh, what have I been doing? Just wanking off a couple of chimps. Bloke who used to be fond of fake passing out in front of his mates, hoping that they'd bugger him. That's right. Serial killer Dennis Nelson. How'd you know? Was it the very accurate Scottish accent? Fucking nailed it again, you fucking wankers. You bloody bastards. It's fucking uncanny how I sound exactly like that Scottish creep, isn't it? I'm a man of many talents. And accurate Scottish accents is goddamn one of them. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.